1: Let's review. Not only did Bacon write all of Shakespeare's plays, but he did so in a deliberate effort to spread the Rosicrucian teaching that other versions of Bacon conspiracy thinking suggest Bacon invented in the first place. This is a super fun idea, but it turns out the vast preponderance of non-conspiracist Shakespeare scholarship is unimpressed by the evidence, such as it is, for this claim. Randomly selecting an expert's lecture on the topic, we give you The Refutation.
2: The most extreme form of reinterpreting Shakespeare is to say that he was someone else, to deny that he wrote the plays at all. No one doubts that there was a William Shakespeare who was born in Stratford-on-Avon and who went on to act in the London Theatres and eventually died back in Stratford. What is contested is whether that man wrote the plays that have come down under his name. And the people who contest it propose various different alternatives. Francis Bacon, the Earl of Oxford, Christopher Marlowe, there's a long list. It tells us a great deal about what people look for in a superlative writer. They see a wonderful poet, or a remarkable psychologist, or a great philosopher, or a man capable of expressing the views of an aristocratic class, or a man deeply concerned about the status of women and the oppressed, or any number of things for which there is some basis in the text of Shakespeare's plays. Then they note that the image they've constructed of the writer doesn't seem to cohere with a guy who was born the son of a country glover. The Glover himself was probably illiterate, and the son never got beyond grammar school in Stratford. So it must have been somebody else. There is no mystery here. There is no subject for debate. The facts of Shakespeare's life are as well recorded as anyone could expect, of his domestic life in Stratford, of his professional life in London. We'd like to know more, of course, but we don't know a great deal about the life of any person in his time, except for a few great figures of state and church We do have documents that say, or that make sense only if you assume, that the actor from Stratford and the playwright in London were the same man. If they were not, if those documents are forgeries or lies, then quite a number of people would have to have been engaged in the great conspiracy, for which there is no positive evidence and no attested reason. Anti-Stratfordianism is in fact just crazy if you know anything about how the theatre works as a profession at all. Theatre is a collaborative art. And people in the theater always know what other people in the theater are doing. Even now, in the much larger world of the New York theater, everybody in it knows everybody else. Everybody knows if someone is ghostwriting someone else. Everybody knows if a new director has been brought in to fix a play. Everybody knows who's understudying such and such a play. Um, Everybody knows who's sleeping together. In the much smaller world of Shakespeare's theater, in London of 1600 when probably no more than 200 people were trying to get a living out of putting on plays at any given time, it is unimaginable that three dozen successful plays could be written by someone other than the man to whom they were publicly attributed, without someone leaving some statement about the hoax. We expect, or at least some people expect, plays to reflect the personal experience of the writer. Specifically, it is assumed that plays about kings and queens and lords must have been written by an aristocrat. How else would he know how they behave at court? Hence the suggestion that it was really Bacon, who grew up at court and became chancellor of the realm. Or Oxford, an aristocrat whose lineage goes back to the Norman conquest. But that is to mistake the nature of Shakespeare's art, which does not pretend to present a realistic transcription of behavior in high places. No real king or duke ever spoke in spontaneous blank verse. And to suppose that a middle-class boy could not grow up to write tragedies about princes is sheer social snobbery. Most Elizabethan plays are about princes, yet none of the anti-Stratfordians have ever suggested that the plays of Shakespeare's contemporaries, the plays of Webster or Kidd or Beaumont and Fletcher, were really written by lords.
1: We don't have much more to say here, except that, as usual, the conspiracy theorists have failed to meet their burden of proof. But it's also worth reflecting that this is yet another example of how the Rosicrucians can be molded to fit essentially any scenario, which has served the idea well in the subsequent centuries, as it was resurrected over and over in different guises by different groups in different parts of the world, each claiming to carry on the true legacy.
3: Which, again, we can't emphasize enough, was deliberately fabricated, didn't actually hold any secrets, didn't respond to new members' application to join couldn't bring about the total social upheaval for good that they promised, and that remained an object of fascination, mainly because nobody ever seems to have actually met a Rosicrucian.
1: We would be remiss if we didn't quote Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum at this point, because the characterization of the Rosicrucians by the students of conspiracies in that book seems to capture the essence of the thing. As one particularly intense adept suggests, the Rosicrucians
3: were ultimately responsible for the education of Hermes Trismegistus, Homer, the Druids of Gaul, Solomon, Solon, Pythagoras, Plotinus, the Essenes, the Therapeutae, Joseph of Arimathea, who took the Grail to Europe, Alcuin, King Dagobert, St. Thomas, Bacon, Shakespeare, Spinoza, Jacob Burme, Debussy, and Einstein.
1: From 17th century fraud to origin of all human wisdom in just a few lines, and from a less Rosicrucian besotted character,
3: the rest is a complete mess. Everybody's a Rosicrucian. In 1627, Francis Bacon's New Atlantis was published, and readers thought he was talking about the land of the Rosicrucians, even though he never mentioned them. Poor Johann Valentin André died, still swearing up and down that he wasn't a Rosicrucian, or if he said he was, he had only been kidding, but but now it was too late. The Rosicrucians were everywhere, aided by the fact that they didn't exist.
1: Holy shit, is that a great t-shirt slogan. So, in other words, the Rosicrucians were all things to all commenters, and all without any apparent existence, which of course didn't stop people from being influenced by and commenting on the phenomenon. McIntosh suggests, rather speculatively, that the intellectual and social turmoil stirred up by the Rosicrucians would eventually arrive on the shores of Scotland and mutate into masonry.
3: But of course, Freemasonry is our next topic, so let's hold off on that.
1: He's on firmer ground suggesting that the famous British Royal Society,
3: one of the preeminent scholarly and scientific organizations from the 17th century to the present, and which has boasted luminaries from Isaac Newton to Stephen Hawking as fellows,
1: was in some sense an effort to create the sort of intellectual brotherhood dedicated to the betterment of humankind that is preached in the Rosicrucian manifestos. As the centuries passed, though, Rosicrucianism's meaning would continue to evolve with the times and would come to take on various national flavors. As Churden notes, by the time a real, genuine, organized version of this 17th century fever dream, with actual members and everything, appeared in the subsequent century, the focus had turned from an international fraternity dedicated to the study of all wisdom into a series of mostly intra country groups focused on one subject above all others. Alchemy! Yes, that brief mention that CRC could turn lead into gold in the Fama eventually became the 18th century's primary Rosicrucian ideal. And there's more interesting history here, but we think the most fascinating story within the various tales of 18th century alchemical Rosicrucianism is that of the Comte Saint-Germain.
3: Is this another made-up guy like Christian Rosenkreuz?
1: No, he's a real human being who definitely lived. And he was an alchemist, and apparently was fluent in Rosicrucian ideas, as were perhaps most educated men of his time. But beyond that, he's pretty hard to pin down. Listen, for example, to how these two YouTube videos by internet randos display varying degrees of credulity when relating the alleged details of his life. The
4: Count of St. Germain was one of the most renowned figures of 18th century Europe. A confidant of kings, mysterious miracle worker, and famous alchemist and astrologer, many stories and rumors surround this enigmatic nobleman. The Count used many names during his documented travels throughout Europe in the late 18th century, almost one for every country he visited. No one could determine where his wealth came from, but it was seemingly unlimited. On several occasions he showed gorgeous jewels of unimaginable worth to royalty. Yet when he died, not a single jewel was found in his possessions. He debated philosophy with royalty across Europe played the violin in London for the aristocracy, and was employed as a diplomat by King Louis XV of France.
5: Some believed him to be born in the 1600s, or even a thousand years earlier. Despite his true origin, nothing was known about the Count until he showed up in London in 1743. Some records indicate that it was even earlier than that. Once he became known, Saint Germain quickly impressed everyone he came across with his abilities. The Count could speak practically every European language, and do so in a native accent to that language. He could also play the harpist chord, piano, and violin at a virtuoso level, performing in front of royalty. But his talents didn't stop there. The Count could also paint beautifully. He was a marvelous conversationalist and a master chemist. In fact, he claimed to be able to remove flaws from diamonds and transmute metals, such as turning base metal into gold. Some speculate this is how he attained his wealth. You see, the Count was often adorned in diamonds, and was rich from the start. Yet nobody ever knew the origin of his wealth. It was said that he talked about history as if he was actually there. Because he did, Some of the people around him were entirely convinced he was at these historical events. If that was true, it means the Count was either immortal, could reincarnate into different bodies while retaining his memory, or was some kind of time traveler. We'll never really know for certain, but my guess is that he had learned to preserve his body through the ancient knowledge he accumulated. But, besides all that, The Count is also known for never aging. That is why Voltaire said he never dies. So
1: you caught some hints of how the actual person behind the legend became so legendary in the first place. But Churton helps us get a better picture of the Comte. He was probably the bastard son of Transylvanian and Bavarian royalty, and though he could not live the life of a true noble, had been offered sufficient inheritance and precious items he could sell off to maintain himself in high society throughout his life. This combined with his apparent gifts in a variety of areas, including, quote,
3: Miraculous dyeing techniques, the removal of flaws from diamonds, the creation of a yellow metal called similor, his interest in longevity, his peacemaking moves on behalf of the French government, and his general brilliance and philosophical acuity, all combined to give him the luster of a great debt. The period in which he manifested, the era of high-grade masonry and neo Rosicrucianism, rendered it certain that one such as he would enter the annals of legend.
1: And then there was the fact that he was one of those select humans who just don't seem to age.
3: Your Paul's Rudd, your Salma's Hayek, your Wilfred's Brimley.
1: There's also the fact that he was never seen by anyone to eat a meal, probably because he was a vegetarian and therefore basically couldn't attend any formal dinners for fear of being rudely unable to partake of most courses.
3: So you've got a mysterious itinerant nobleman who travels from court to court. Dazzling everyone with his erudition, skill in an array of musical and visual arts, and obvious wealth, yet he comes from no traceable background that could explain any of this. Oh, and he never seems to age or eat. Yeah, that sounds like the setup for a lot of wild speculation among the landed gentry.
1: Yes, indeed, especially since the Count, probably well aware of these rumors and questions about his mysterious self, would regularly feed the legend by relating stories of things that had happened a century or more in the past as if he were an eyewitness. And so he did become a legend, an immortal alchemist.
3: Albeit one who deflatingly is known to have died in 1784.
1: But what's a little dying to get in the way of immortality? And so the stories continued long after his death. Let's discuss one of those that hits close to home for us, yet another in the long history of murder and hauntings in New Orleans.
6: Fast forward to New Orleans, Louisiana, and there appears a man by the name of Jacques Saint-Germain, who fits every description of the count above around 40 years of age, with heavy money bags, the most fascinating of dinner guests, and still a complete mystery. He would throw lavish parties and invite the elite. Everyone would sit enraptured in the conversation and food, but curiously enough, this Jacques Saint-Germain would never eat a morsel, but one night he had a lady stay a bit late. Out on his balcony at the corner of Ursuline and Royal Streets, This Saint-Germain grabbed her and tried to bite her neck. She escaped by falling from the balcony and then reported the incident to the police. When the police came to investigate, Jacques Saint-Germain had vanished. They searched his apartment and found tablecloths with large spots of blood on them. They searched the kitchen, where they found no sign of food or evidence that food had ever been there. All they found were bottles of wine. And, after pouring themselves a glass, drinking it, and then spitting it out, they discovered that it was not only wine in those bottles, but wine mixed with human blood.
3: So now he's spending his time 150 years after he died drinking blood-laced wine and threatening women of loose morals.
1: I mean, probably not, but spooky, right? Not really. Tough crowd. Okay, how about this one? The main reason the count is still a going concern in modern occultist and mystical circles is because the 19th century founder of Theosophy,
3: A movement we'll probably get to during our second long Secret Society series.
1: Madame Helena Blavatsky decided that Saint-Germain was in point of fact the Continuer of Christian Rosenkreutz. In other words, as many followers took it, Saint-Germain never aged because he was in fact the immortal Christian Rosenkreutz himself, reincarnated to live forever. In fact, theosophists consider Germain Rosenkreutz to be one of the ascended masters that are central to their claims about the universe. Regardless, the man served as a sort of avatar of the life-extending mysteries of Rosicrucianism, for first a generation of European nobility in the 18th century, and then again for a few generations of theosophists in the 19th and 20th century. And that's about all we're planning to say about that period of Rosicrucianism, partially because, as our authors note, the alchemical period has very little to do with the universalist aims of the original manifestos and their adherents. But even more, we want to move along to the final major historical element of the Rosicrucian story that we're going to focus on. That is, what happens when an ascetic, mystical, and esoteric universalist discipline meets the matchless, crass, unabashed world of American capitalism?
3: Seems like CRC is about to get steamrolled.
1: Maybe. Or maybe not. As Professor Spence noted, the group is, in a sense, a very early incarnation of an extremely American phenomenon.
7: The Rosicrucians were this mysterious group which just kind of surfaced out of nowhere and then eventually claimed to have a pedigree going back a couple of centuries before to their founder. But then, of course, even further than that, because he was simply bringing together doctrines that were timeless. So he was only discovering the wisdom of the ages and packaging it in a new form, which now the Rosicrucians were taking forward. The thing is, is that we have no documentation that anybody named Christian Rosenkreutz ever actually existed, that there was any society of his kind, that any of this was other than a kind of, you know, marketing invention of people who were advertising the secret society in the early 1600s.
1: And if you think of the authors of the manifestos as marketers par excellence, selling the dream of a product they hadn't even bothered to actually invent, it seems as American as a baseball and apple pie multinational conglomerate.
3: With cheese in the crust.
1: Speaking of Dr. Spence let's let him bring us to the flowering of something that called itself American Rosicrucianism way back at the beginning of the 20th century. He begins the story explaining the history of Harvey Spencer Lewis, the founder and indefatigable marketer supreme of the ancient mystical order Rose Crucis,
7: which, of course, means Rosy Cross.
3: Which we will, from this point, call the A-M-O-R-C, or AMORC, because that other shit is too long.
7: If you glance through old comics or pulp magazines like Amazing Stories, Popular Science, or Mechanics Illustrated, you're bound to come across AMORC ads offering to reveal ancient wisdom, the suppressed knowledge of the ages the secret method for the mastery of life, and the psychic power of attraction. Whether you suffer from depression, or just the vague feeling that there's something horribly wrong with the world, Rosicrucianism offers a cure. The secrets entrusted to a few could be yours, plus handy skills like levitation and telepathy, all for a low, low cost in easy lessons. Simply put, the mystical order's grand imperator, H. Spencer Lewis, turned it into a mass marketing empire, and it's still going. Lewis built his own empire on much older foundations, which he reinvented for the 20th century. Lewis's Rosicrucian adventure started with a vision. In the spring of 1908, then a 25-year-old struggling artist, Lewis claimed to have had a profound mystical experience. A spirit guide instructed him to journey east and seek out the Rosicrucians. The following summer, Lewis said he accompanied his father, Aaron Lewis, on a business trip to Paris. That started the young man on a journey that ended in the ancient city of Toulouse. The city had been a hotbed of the medieval Cathar heresy, which had challenged the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Coincidentally or not, Toulouse remained a magnet for esoteric activity. And it's there, Lewis said, in an old chateau near the Garonne River, that a man named Count du Belcastelline initiated him into the Rosicrucian mysteries. The young American was given free access to the order's library and archives. He made notes and copied whatever he wished. But there was a catch. The Rosicrucians' mission for Lewis was to restore true Rosicrucianism to America, which he did, starting in New York. While he accepted the challenge, the masters, in their mysterious way, decreed he couldn't begin until 1915. Another vision later directed Lewis to California, where he restored Rosicrucianism to its new home in San Jose in 1927. That, in a nutshell, is Lewis's version of the founding of the ancient and mystical order of the Rosy Cross.
1: So Lewis had one story about the way that he founded this group, but as Spence notes, there's plenty of reason to doubt that account. For example, there's no record whatsoever of Lewis or his father traveling to France in 1909 as he claimed. And remember, there are modern, archived, bureaucratic records of travel that historians can check.
3: This isn't the legendary CRC heading to Damasco in the late 1300s.
1: And there's evidence that Lewis was interested in esoteric topics a full six years before his supposedly life-changing journey and exploration of the Rosicrucian archives. In fact, Spence characterizes Lewis's life as rife with flimflamery
3: A description Jesuit loves so much, he wishes he could eat it with a spoon.
7: In his September 1918 draft registration, Lewis lists himself as manager of something called the Order Rosé Crucis. Some months earlier, he'd purchased the old Lily Langtree Mansion on West 23rd Street. Where did he get the money? That's probably answered by a police raid on the mansion and Lewis's arrest in June 1918. He was charged with fraudulently selling thousands of dollars of bond certificates based on the claim that his order was a recognized branch of a worldwide institution devoted to the study of the occult. New York State rejected his application to incorporate the ancient and mystical order as an organization engaged in the analysis of all ancient, medieval, and modern religions, philosophy, and moral codes. That setback probably prompted his move to California.
1: But Spence wasn't just Flim Flam. He really seems to have been into his highly unique and idiosyncratic vision of what Rosicrucianism was. But that doesn't mean he couldn't make a buck off of it. He was a consummate self-promoter, arranging in 1916 for a group of 27 followers to participate in a ceremony wherein he claimed to have transformed zinc into gold. Gold, I tell ya! Gold!
0: I'm
8: rich! I'm rich! Eureka! Gold!
1: Not that, you know, any controlled experiment or unbiased observers were involved in this supposed miracle. Whatever Spence was doing, though, it worked out for him. The AMORC is, to this day... More than 80 years after Lewis's death, still a going concern. Paranauts depression. Well, kind of, but it's super interesting, touches on another topic we've been over previously, and will only take us a moment to discuss. Dr. Spence mentioned that part of Lewis's empire building involved advertising in magazines offering spiritual and practical solutions for modern problems through his group's ability to tap into ancient wisdom. Well, his son followed in the man's footsteps after the elder Lewis's death in 1939, and AMORC did a brisk business in the middle part of the century, sending out records and tapes to hopeful students seeking to better themselves. The group has been kind enough to reproduce some of these in podcast form, and so we can hear Harvey's son, Ralph M. Lewis, discussing the Akashic Records.
3: Nope, we're not explaining what that means.
1: Back in 1957.
9: Fronters and Sorores... The Imperator of the Rosicrucian Order Amor, Ralph M. Lewis.
6: Brothers and sorors, the subject of the Akashic Records is one of great interest to our members. And yet, there seems to be some confusion to what type of record they are. The Akashic records are an abstract principle. They must not be construed as meaning a material record, a writing or inscription of any kind in the ordinary sense of the word.
1: We mention this for two reasons. First, to note that many of the AMORC's audio releases involved self-hypnosis for spiritual enlightenment and self-improvement. And second, because one of the individuals who responded to Lewis's advertising and set about hypnotizing himself with these recordings was Sirhan Sirhan.
3: That name sounds familiar. It should. The man who assassinated Robert Kennedy has been denied
7: parole for the fifteenth time. The decision about Sirhan Sirhan's fate was handed down just ninety minutes ago. It's a story.
3: Oh yeah, you covered him back in the assassinations, non JFK episode, where you talked about how conspiracists believed that Sirhan was actually mind controlled, either to shoot RFK or to stick around looking guilty while the real assassins got away.
1: Exactly. And part of the supposed evidence of the conspiracy is that Sirhan was listening to...
3: Or being forced by mind control to listen to...
1: Those weird occult Rosicrucian records from the AMORC.
3: We find this line of thinking utterly unconvincing. See the full episode for more details.
1: Digression over. So AMORC was seen as part of the flowering of new-agey spiritual beliefs in the mid-century... And aside from brushes with infamy like Sirhan, it was mostly viewed as a harmless, if somewhat flaky, pursuit. But for all of that, Harvey Lewis's brainchild has been pretty darn successful. In fact, it sports a rather impressive headquarters complex in California. Take it away, Dr. Spence, in his Great Courses lecture. If you're ever
7: in San Jose, California, check out Rosicrucian Park. Covering a city block, it's hard to miss. Its centerpiece is an Egyptian museum full of antiquities. Egyptian-style architecture abounds, so of course, there are pyramids. One, festooned with esoteric symbols, marks the resting place of the park's creator, Harvey Spencer Lewis. It's a secret society theme park right in the middle of Silicon Valley. There's even a planetarium, and the headquarters of the society behind it all, the ancient and mystical order of the Rose Crucis, or Rosy Cross, or just Amarc for short.
3: Hey wait, Jesuit, isn't San Jose like right down the road from the Jesuit compound? I mean, with traffic, it's about an hour away. So, shouldn't you probably go to this Egyptian museum and see what the fuss is about?
1: I mean, probably, yeah. So I did. One Saturday in the summer of 2021, I headed to the stately, yet ersatz, AMORC complex to visit the Egyptian museum that Harvey Lewis and his organization founded and developed.
3: Incidentally, we think it's a little weird that somebody who was obsessed with a true Rosicrucianism should have such a focus on ancient Egypt. If you'll recall the fictional biography of Christian Rosenkreuz, he only made a brief stop in Egypt to look at the plants and animals as he traveled between Damkar and Fez. But, you know, ancient Egypt, secret wisdom of the ages, yada, yada, yada. Quite. (laughs) Museum ...began in 1929 with our first artifact, RC number one, a small statue of the lion-headed goddess, Sekhmet. Today, the collection includes over 4,000 authentic ancient artifacts, plus a handful of models that help to set the context for some of the galleries. Every artifact that you see behind glass is ancient. I'm not
1: sure what I expected to find, but as advertised, the place is rife with both actual app, antiquities
10: and mummified human remains, as well as
1: copies of artifacts from such awkwardly non-Egyptian storehouses of ancient Egyptian treasures as the British Museum.
3: Ah, colonialism.
1: Yeah. One of the highlights is a recreation of an Egyptian burial chamber, Please which in parts is really impressively put together, and in parts is as convincing a replica as the mummy section of the county fair haunted house.
3: This Cleopatra. Then go to your, absolute. go to your ...ask questions. Did you ever steal milk from me? Oh, no, I'm the season. Did you ever have heard water from your neighbor's meals? No. Did you ever refuse the use of your boat to a common person?
5: Forty-two such questions are asked, all of which must be answered no. If that is successfully done, and the heart does not weigh down with guilt, the deceased will be granted all of those things seen on the daily by wall. He or she will be judged and mocked, a justified
11: spirit, and according to the ancient Egyptian literary spell, will be.
1: And as you might expect, based on Lewis's and the Egyptians' shared obsession with the subject, there is also a well-curated alchemy display, which walks visitors through the various stages of both the physical and spiritual versions of the discipline. The goal
12: is to introduce new life into the fetus created by the union of iron and copper. The fifth rangle depicts the operation of fermentation. It shows the birds of soul and spirit nesting in a tree, awaiting the hatching of their fertilized egg. The inscription means you will discover. During fermentation, digesting bacteria create a spirit of alcohol. On the personal level, it is an influx of inspirational energy into the site. Brain number six is marked with a cipher for both the moon and silver. The goal is to purify materials by heating them and then condensing the vapors. On the personal level, it means repeated reflection and elevation of our thoughts and feelings. The next round will depict the operation of distillation. It shows a unicorn resting okay. next to a you build rose build your setup.
3: I guess the it's Europe time to make fun of the aimworks, mystical, alchemical, alchemical nonsense?
5: nonsense.
1: And the rose is yeah, that would claw. fit my M.O., certainly, but I didn't feel that way traveling through these exhibits. Lewis maybe had the heart of a scammer, but he and the people who came after him were also genuine spiritual seekers. And while we don't put much stock in alchemy as a route to attaining the wisdom of the ancients, or some higher level of consciousness... There really is something very relaxing and pleasant about sitting quietly, looking deeply into the image representing alchemical cycles on the wall,
12: and meditatively
8: blissing out.
6: It is inscribed
12: with the word meaning the stone, which refers to the birth of the Philosopher's Stone. At the top of the ring, above the crown of the quintessence, is a winged figure known as the Ascended Essence, It signifies the completion of the spiritual work. The soul, now perfected, is ready to take flight to a whole new level of being.
3: Now that you understand... Jess? Yeah? You're flaking on me?
1: No, 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 no. Let's get back to the hard-nosed skeptical stuff. As we leave Lewis and the Rosicrucians generally, we want to quote Churton and his description of how Lewis's obsession with contacting the original, supposedly real Rosicrucians or their descendants is emblematic of a certain type.
3: This urge seems to get right into some people's self-consciousness to the extent that they cannot imagine they're not of critical interest to the supernal order. Their lives are subsequently interpreted by themselves and their followers as being guided from on high.
1: That observation nicely brings us to the last thing we want to talk about in this context, a big fat novel that many of you may have sitting unread on your bookcases right now. That book is Foucault's Pendulum by the late Italian author and professor of semiotics, Umberto Eco. It was a hugely popular purchase in the 90s among lit and history-obsessed college types, but many people,
3: including him,
1: who picked up a copy during that period may not have succeeded in conquering the rather dense text on their first tries. If you're one of those who never finished it, or if you can find a used copy at a thrift store, which always seems to have one or two, we strongly recommend you pick it up and dive in. We knew we were going to discuss the novel at some point in the series, but it wasn't really clear where. As it turns out, the followers of Rosicrucianism are a great place to talk about Eiko's masterwork of conspiracy, because his protagonists are not only obsessed with the German Invisible Order, but also in their own way follow in Andre and Company's footsteps, imagining a thing that then becomes real, only to see it immediately spin out of their control. In spite of its imposing length, the novel is such an exciting read, it's amazing that it hasn't been picked up by Hollywood for the da Vinci treatment. There's murder, both secretive and ritual. In fact, several. And tales of the Templars. And, like, tons of historical research and thoughtful conversations in bars and cafes and meditations on constructing meaning in life. You know what? We can see why it hasn't become a blockbuster starring The Rock doing a very bad Italian accent. But there is a Brazilian sex ritual scene.
3: Hot.
1: Anyway, read it.
3: Obviously, we're about to sprawl the fuck out of this novel. And so we want to tell you how far forward to skip if you're still planning to read it. But the thing is, we're not going to know how long the discussion is until after he edits the show together. In other words, long after he and I have recorded our parts. So in a moment, he's going to stick in a computer voice to tell you exactly how far to skip if you don't want spoilers.
11: Please skip forward 11 minutes and 8 seconds to avoid spoilers. Also, drink more water. You look dehydrated.
5: You're welcome.
1: The plot centers on three underemployed editors and scholars who have fallen into the orbit of a publishing house that delivers two types of books lavishly printed, expensive tomes on esoteric, occult, and hermetic topics, on the one hand, and on the other, self publishing the works of cranks who are too obsessed with their own ideas and supposed brilliance to notice that they're getting ripped off by the terms of the deal. Our narrator, Casaubon is writing a thesis on the Templars when he is brought in to consult on the latest book in the latter category. A thesis claiming that the author, an elderly military man, has discovered an ongoing secret plan by the Templars to take over the world. Said author soon disappears under strange circumstances, the book project is dropped, and Casaubon moves to Brazil with a woman he's infatuated with. There he meets the mysterious Aglier, an elderly man who strongly implies that he is none other than the Comte de Saint Germain.
3: Though that figure's reputation was built not only on his supposed immortality, but also his eternal youth.
1: Details, details. Upon Casalbon's return to Italy, several years later, he and his companions reunite and decide it would be fun to make a game out of creating their own overarching conspiracist master plan. So they feed the military guy's manuscript, along with some Kabbalistic literature and various other factoids, into the office computer. These factoids, they enter, are listed out in the text, and we found they closely resembled an unrelated recent phenomenon in which an anonymous soothsayer drops seemingly random pearls of wisdom that followers then transform into an overarching plan. See if you catch our drift.
11: The Templars have something to do with everything. What follows is not true. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The sage Omis founded the Rosy Cross in Egypt. There are Kabbalists in province. Who was married at the feast of Cana? Minnie Mouse is Mickey's fiance. It logically follows that if the Druids venerated black virgins, then Simon Magus identifies Sophia as a prostitute of Tyre, who was married at the Feast of Cana. The Merovingians proclaim themselves kings by divine right. The Templars have something to do with everything.
3: Ah, you're using our beloved computer guy to imply the similarity between this deliberate nonsense and the anonymous Q-drops that feed the QAnons. Point taken. But what do these guys plan to do with their computer-generated conspiracy?
1: It appears they do it mostly for their own amusement, with the vague idea of writing a book aimed at their conspiracist audience that will seem super believable to those credulords due to the scholars' in-depth knowledge of the overall subject. The plan that they generate based on the computer's output is, of course, completely fucking ridiculous, and starts with Pangea.
3: The fuck is a Pangea?
1: That's that period hundreds of millions of years ago when all of the world's continents were one big supercontinent. Please don't bother trying to figure this out too much.
3: But weren't there no people when Pangea was a thing?
1: Yeah, but to be fair to this plan, humans only missed it by like 175 million years. Now, stop with the logic. The original ancient masters back in Pangea days...
3: Those masters were presumably dinosaurs?
1: Stifle it, unicorn. Anyway, they understood how to manipulate the energy of the Earth itself, which the guys creating this conspiracy decided to call telluric currents. Said ancient masters presumably used their tiny little useless T-Rex arms to carve this information in coded sigils into Ayers Rock in modern-day Australia, then passed along their secrets to the Atlanteans. Of course. Who then passed it to the ancient Celts, who built megaliths like Stonehenge on the telluric power lines. But they had only part of the secret. The rest belonged to the Egyptians who passed it on to the Jews who codified it in the measurements of Solomon's temple and then into the Pentateuch.
3: That is the first five books of the Bible.
1: In a cipher that only the enlightened could crack. Jesus learned this from the Essene mystics, which is why he got crucified. But then Joseph of Arimathea,
3: the guy who helped carry the cross and or offered his own tomb for Jesus's body after the crucifixion, depending on the gospel you read,
1: brought this secret to the Celts. This was the real holy grail.
3: Hear that? Suck it, Mary Magdalene.
1: But hold your horses. There's still another piece missing, which was passed on by original temple rabbis to the Ismailis and the Sufis, who then passed it to the Templars. And that secret is the location of the Navel of the World, the control room from which this telluric energy can be manipulated to control the weather, create natural disasters, etc. The power is the Philosopher's Stone that the alchemists sought as well. And the conspiracy part is, the Templars have plotted their revenge since King Philip burned Jacques de Molay in 1314. That revenge involves a plot to find this control room and use it to just fuck up their enemies.
3: Presumably the French and the Catholic Church.
1: But also to take over the world! But because the knights got split up after they were officially dissolved, each Templar group across the world only has one piece of the puzzle. Every 120 years, a clue leads one group to contact another. Eventually, the Templars' descendants would have connected everything and unlocked the secrets. But this 120-year cycle broke down somewhere, and only our intrepid Italian scholars were able to crack the secret.
3: Mostly because they made it up.
1: And it turns out the secret the Templars were trying to reconstruct over the centuries was the precise time, date, and location when a Foucault pendulum...
3: Which is a real thing. A free-swinging pendulum that over time moves in a complete circle and can be used to prove the Earth is rotating.
1: We'll point the way to the secret Earth control room location.
3: So the Templars are now just James Bond villains?
1: I mean, kind of, yeah. The book is, at its root, a parody of the conspiracist view of history, while at the same time a very humane consideration of the reasons that people come to these bizarre, intricate, unlikely views of the world. So of course the theory these guys come up with is silly. They intend it to be. But then once they've created it, they start to see signs that maybe at least parts of it are true. Mysterious people are taking an interest in them. Some of the signs that they themselves made up about the plan coming to fruition start to really happen in real life. And understandably, this leads them to some ruminations on how engaging in this type of thinking, even as a purely amusing exercise, can inadvertently change the way you see the world, even if you're the one who invented the whole thing. As one of the characters notes...
3: Any fact becomes important when it's connected to another. The connection changes the perspective. It leads you to think that every detail of the world, every voice, every word written or spoken has more than its literal meaning that tells us of a secret.
1: To prove this point, two characters have a dialogue where they use this assumption of the complete connectedness of things to read a world-spanning conspiracy into an automotive manual. You'll of course see all of this is particularly appealing to one fearful Jesuit, Trying to grok why conspiracists think the way they do is one of my fundamental obsessions. And the reason why I tend not to buy into these ideas is nicely encapsulated by this quote from the novel.
13: Not that the incredulous person doesn't believe in anything. It's just that he doesn't believe in everything. Or he believes in one thing at a time. He believes a second thing only if it somehow follows from the first thing. He is nearsighted and methodical, avoiding wide horizons. If two things don't fit, but you believe both of them thinking that somewhere hidden there must be a third thing that connects them. That's credulity.
1: The book is sympathetic to believers in conspiracy and magic, and there are a few scenes where seemingly inexplicable mystical things happen.
3: Ghostly figures appearing out of emanations from mystics in a trance, for example.
1: But nothing that can't be explained away as the hallucinations of human beings pushed to extremes. Fundamentally, though, it's a celebration of both the real and imagined history of the secret society groups that we've covered.
3: And others that we'll cover shortly
1: and a warning about the risks of thinking in a paranoid or conspiracist way. One of the most poignant passages comes during a conversation between Kasoban and his pregnant girlfriend, who is frustrated by his obsession with the made-up plan and his worry that it's coming true. She quickly demolishes the secret meanings that the supposedly wise assign to various concepts, showing how they derive not from the wisdom of the ancients, but the practical experience of innumerable
13: generations of humans simply living their lives on Earth. Archetypes don't exist. The body exists. When somebody wants to invent something beautiful and important, it has to come from there. Because you also came from there the day you were born. Because fertility always comes from inside a cavity. And high is better than low. Because if you have your head down, the blood goes to your brain. Because feet stink and hair doesn't stink as much. Because it's better to climb a tree and pick fruit than end up underground, food for worms. That's why up is angelic and down is devilish. The sun is good because it does the body good. And because it has the sense to reappear every day. Therefore, whatever returns is good, not what passes and is done with. As In a circle, everybody can see the one who's in the center, whereas if a whole tribe formed a straight line like a squad of soldiers, the people at the ends wouldn't see. And that's why the circle and rotary motion and cyclic return are fundamental to every cult and every rite, standing up during the day, lying down at night. The vertical position is life, pointed sunward, and obelisks stand as trees stand while the horizontal position and night are sleep, death. All cultures worship menhirs, monoliths, pyramids, columns. But nobody bows down to balconies and railings. Did you ever hear of an archaic cult of the sacred banister?
1: Unfortunately for Casaubon and his friends, the reason that they think the absurd plan is coming true is because, in a sense, it is. A group of rich cultists, whom they call the Diabolicals, and which includes the pseudo-Saint-Germain, Aglier, have all decided that these academics have stumbled upon the true, real plan that people like them have been looking for for centuries, and therefore these Diabolicals begin kidnapping and murdering everyone who knows about it culminating in an absurd scene where they execute Kassoban's friend at midnight in a hall in
3: the Musée des Arts,
1: They expect this sacrifice to reveal the secret location to them. When it doesn't, they don't decide to abandon their quest, but rather set their sights on Casaubon himself, who, as the novel ends, is coming to terms with the fact that he will likely die at the hands of these idiots, all because he and his friends invented a silly conspiracy theory. But it turns out there is no conspiracy too silly for people to believe it. And just as with the Rosicrucians, simply believing a proposition is true can cause believers to work to make it come true. As we move to our next topic, we have one more quote from Casaubon. realizing what he and his friends have accidentally done, a thought that we all might benefit from keeping in mind.
13: When we traded the results of our fantasies, it seemed to us, and rightly, that we had proceeded by unwarranted associations, by shortcuts so extraordinary that if anyone had accused us of really believing them, we would have been ashamed. We consoled ourselves with the realization, unspoken now, respecting the etiquette of irony, that we were parodying the logic of our diabolicals. But during the long intervals in which each of us collected evidence to produce at the plenary meetings, and with the clear conscience of those who accumulate material for a medley of burlesques, our brains grew accustomed to connecting, 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 everything with everything else, until we did it automatically out of habit. I believe that you can reach the point where there is no longer any difference between developing the habit of pretending to believe and developing the habit of believing. So, where to next?
1: Why, to the most important and fundamental secret society of all. The one you can't help but run into when researching any other secret society throughout history. The one that has not only mythic origins, but literally centuries of verifiable, impactful, international history behind it. And the one your grandpa might have proudly been a member of.
3: Oh, the Freemasons. (laughs)
1: As we kick off this, which is likely the longest of our secret society discussions...
3: Wait, you just did an hour and 40 minutes on the goddamn Rosicrucians, and you think this is going to be longer than that?
1: Yes. Yes, I do. And that's because, as interesting as I hope you'll all agree the Rosicrucians' story was, their impact was predicated, for the most part, on their essential non-existence. And as for our other topics, the Priory was a real thing that had at most a couple of dozen members at any given time, and was only around in real life for a decade or so. The Cathars were almost completely wiped out by their opponents after a heyday of influence in a limited region of southern France that lasted maybe 150 years, but was only a big deal for half that time. The Templars are, among these groups, the one with the longest verifiable history, 1119 to 1307,
3: or 1314 if you extend out to the Molay's immolation.
1: Of course, these are the historically reliable dates. As we've discussed, many conspiracists claim wildly unsupportable periods for these societies' existence, from Plantard's thousand-year scion hoax to conspiracists' insistence that the Templars continue to be a vital force behind world events, not only for centuries beyond their dissolution, but all the way to the present. But in terms of historically verifiable tenure and influence across the world, all of the above pale in comparison to Freemasonry, which has existed in nearly its modern form for over three centuries. And as we'll shortly hear, many elements of the craft,
3: which is both the term that many Masons use to prefer to the group and the title of a great, great history by Professor John Dickey that we will rely on for as long as Jesuit plans to keep jabbering about this topic.
1: Indeed, and many elements of the craft can be clearly extended back an additional century to the court of King James in Scotland in the 16-teens. So they've really no shit been around for 400 years, give or take, but their importance is more than just their longevity. Masons are also one of the key groups that all conspiracies boil down to, according to Jesuits' maxim of conspiracy underpinnings, trademark
0: pending.
3: That is, if you dig deeply enough into any conspiracy theory— The shadowy figures behind it are always either the Jews, the aliens, or the Illuminati. Oh, and the Illuminati is just a scarier word for Freemasonry.
1: Well, it was when the Illuminati actually existed. More on that a bit later, but yeah, that's our educated opinion. Every single conspiracy theory, if you chase it down the rabbit hole long enough, has one of those shadowy groups at the bottom of it. For example, consider the following hypothetical conversations.
3: The Earth is flat.
1: But everything about reality tells us it's not.
3: That's just because you believe the lies are feeding you, sheeple. Who is they? What are you, fucking stupid? It's the
11: Jews, aliens, and our Illuminati slash Freemasons.
1: Need another example? Okay.
3: The COVID vaccine is poison made out of puried human babies designed to neuter men, spontaneously abort the next generation in the womb, implant microchips that let us be tracked by Bill Gates wire us for 5G, and remake our DNA to remove the god gene and turn everyone into atheists. Wait, what?
1: Just read the script, unicorn. Those are all things people have actually said about COVID vaccines.
3: Seriously? Fuck. Anyway, that shit I just said is totally true, and you know who's behind it?
1: Bill Gates? Didn't you just
3: mention him? No, you fucking sheep-lip-tarp moron. He's being secretly controlled. And you know who's doing the controlling? It's
11: Jews, aliens, and our Illuminati slash Freemasons.
3: Obviously.
1: Give it a shot with the rest of the conspiracies we've covered. It's eerie how a quick search through the forums, sites, videos, and podcasts dedicated to these topics eventually lead to one or more of these three purported villains. Which brings me to the fact that while I was working on this series, I happened upon a YouTube clip in which a caller to a British radio station...
3: Jez? Ma'am? I think you're kind of whitewashing the actual facts here. Not to badger the witness, but this YouTube clip, as you put it, it was just a few minutes? Like a normal clip length? Not
1: exactly. It was like 360-something minutes.
3: Right. A six-hour-plus compilation of what exactly?
1: Of James O'Brien, a smarty-pants talk radio host I think is clever, taking calls from pro-Brexiteers who have no idea what they're talking about. Six hours? Yes. Of that. Yes, the call-in question is about three hours in.
3: And you were listening to this for work? No. The show? Not really. So you were listening for fun? Yeah, but I listened
1: on double speed, so it was only like three hours or so. You have a problem. Look, if listening to people confidently and proudly present blithering nonsense is a crime, I'm going to be first up against the wall when the revolution comes. Also, O'Brien bats this woman around like a kitten with a ball of yarn. I love it. So much. Right. Now, Heron-
8: we have a view in this country that we have a democracy, yeah. um, and anybody who says, well, hang on a minute, um, is considered a conspiracy theorist. You yourself brought up the, the World Trade Centre debacle, but yet you haven't mentioned the, the third building that fell okay. due to office fires. Okay. Now, that's quite interesting. I, I'm
0: sure it is, uh, but I think we'll wait to find out just how interesting it is for another day, Catherine. J- just, just to be clear, where do you think the rigging takes place?
8: I believe that vote rigging takes place, yes. Yeah, but where? How do they do have it? you heard of the Freemasons? I, I, no, what are they? You have never heard of the Freemasons? No. <laughs> well, I can't believe that you can be there talking with any degree of authority on conspiracy theory without any cognizance of, of Freemasons. Who, who are the Freemasons?
0: Are they bad? The,
8: the, the Freemasons are a secret society which inhabits... Oh, well, that's why I haven't heard of them. The of London, that's why I haven't heard of them, because they're secret. Sorry?
0: That's why I haven't heard of them, because they're so secret.
8: No, they're really not that secret. You just society. said they were a secret society. Well, they can so their dealings, their did, did they do their
0: did
4: do the third tower? Did they do the third tower? Sorry. Did they blow up the third tower?
8: Well, I think that's a stupid question. Sorry. I absolutely refuse to even with out. Fair good. enough. Did they kill Tupac? Who the hell is Tupac? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you're having a conversation about <laughs> conspiracy theories and you're not <laughs> cognizant of Tupac Shakur's assassination. Uh,
0: well, I'm sorry, now you're starting to ridicule me, which is absolutely the way that
8: people go when I, they I know, see something when you
0: really claim that the conspiracy Freemasons conspiracy rigged conspiracy. the vote for the... Re- I, I, Catherine, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to make a stand-on principle here and say it's not my fault that you're getting ridiculed. <laughs>
8: It is you that's the the Absolutely, so but it's not my fault.
0: This
1: lady is a great example of how the Freemasons, like the Jews and the aliens, can suddenly emerge out of nowhere in the middle of a seemingly unrelated conspiracy theory discussion. Because, remembering the JMCU, nobody is going to adopt that acronym. One of them is behind abso fucking lootly everything. And so the Masons are not only the longest-lasting secret society, but arguably the one that has the most important place in the minds of conspiracists. But on top of that, the craft has been incredibly influential in the real world. For example, nearly a third of all U.S. presidents have been Freemasons, 14 out of 46. Um, how many have been Knights Templar, Dana?
3: I'm gonna say, like, none. Probably none.
1: He wrecked. And we already covered the fact that the Masons were a big enough deal in the early days of the American Republic that there was a competitive national political party whose primary goal was reducing their influence on American political, civil, and economic life. But Masons have been at or near the top of not just politics, but a variety of fields for centuries, especially in the English-speaking world. And throughout that period, there have been plenty of reasons to think that the fraternity has influenced events behind the scenes for both good and bad.
3: Think back to the beginning of this topic. Dr. Spence told us a story about the Russian Revolution, when a member of the despised and recently deposed ruling class called upon a communist official to give him safe passage, based on their shared identity as masons. Remarkably, against all requirements of his political station, the Bolshevik let the royalists escape unscathed. This is precisely the sort of subtle influence that the existence of the masons has verifiably had on world history.
1: But of course, the very secrecy that animates the group has led stories like this to be inflated in the minds of conspiracists into a vision of all-powerful, secret Masonic manipulations that simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Conspiracy theorists have the Masons working behind the scenes to affect everything from local elections to the French Revolution.
3: As we shall see soon.
1: But it's not just the conspiracists who are muddying the waters here. The story is also complicated by the often obfuscatory and self-serving way the Masons have written, edited, and at times outright fabricated elements of their own history, stretching their story thousands of years back into the mists of time and taking credit for both heroism and oppression that doesn't really fit the historical facts. So let's get started with this monstrously huge topic. This time, let's get an understanding of what Freemasonry is today, and then we'll use that knowledge to inform our historical travels.
6: Was a in City.
1: Freemasonry today is, by almost any measure, in significant decline from its high point in the previous century. And that high watermark for the Masons was, to a disproportionate degree, driven by the near ubiquity of the group in post-war America. In the early 1960s, it's estimated that one in 12 American men were involved in the Masons.
3: Meaning that there were twice as many Masons in the United States at this time than in the rest of the world combined.
1: But that only tells a small part of the story, because those American men who weren't involved in the Masons were more than likely members of one of the 235 other more or less secret societies that emerged to emulate the Masons between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century. These ranged from the, <clears throat> Improved Order of Red Men.
3: That sounds problematic.
1: As well as the National Grange of the Order of the Patrons of Husbandry the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks, the Tribe of Ben-Hur, and plenty of others. In 1905, the Rotary Club was founded as a not-particularly-secret-secret society.
3: Basically masonry with all the secret society stuff removed, but all of the business networking and community improvement stuff retained.
1: There were some others that might still sound familiar to you, including the aforementioned Elks, as well as the Odd Fellows.
3: So-called poor man's masonry and a group to which Jesuit's beloved great-grandfather belonged.
1: The Knights of Columbus,
3: joined by Fearful's grandfather. Basically masonry, but organized and administered by the Catholic Church.
1: And TV reflected this obsession with membership of all kinds as well. Remember Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble belonging to the loyal order of the water buffalo?
3: But Fred and Barney were water buffaloes, mostly because they were a prehistoric ripoff of Ralph and Ed from the Honeymooners, who in turn were loyal raccoons. Lenny and Squiggy, as the book 101 Secrets of the Freemasons reminds us, We're in the fraternal order of the Bass on Laverne and Shirley.
1: I appreciate these additional references, Dana, but I was trying not to sound like the oldest man in the world. Too late. Okay, what about Monty Python? In their classic architect sketch, a man who has just presented a plan for a residential tower that's based on his prior experience building slaughterhouses.
10: The tenants arrive in the entrance hall here, are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort and past murals depicting Mediterranean scenes towards the <laughs> rotating
14: knives. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproof. The blood pours down these chutes
8: and the flesh
14: slurps into these large Excuse conti- me, hmm? uh,
8: did you say knives? Um, Rotating knives, yes.
10: Are you uh, proposing to slaughter our tenants? Does that not fit in with your
3: plans?
1: (laughs) abandons his attempt to actually get the job and ends up first decrying and then begging for membership in the Masons that presumably all of the connected businessmen to whom he's presenting his plans belong.
2: Oh, the abattoir, that's not important.
10: But if one of you could put in a word for me, I'd love to be a Freemason. Freemason, Freemasonry (laughs) opens doors. I mean, I was was a bit on edge just now, but but if I was a Mason, I'd just sit at the back and not get in anyone's way.
3: Thank you.
8: I've got a second hand apron. Thank you. Next
3: A spry, half-century-old reference.
1: Okay, smartass, for a more contemporary, yet still from our perspective, frighteningly dated animated reference point, remember when Homer joined the Stonecutters?
6: Who keeps Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do! We do! Who
10: holds back the electric car?
3: Timely 26-year-old Simpsons quote Methuselah,
1: Damn you, relentless passage of time. Regardless, as these examples indicate, popular culture in the 20th century reflected the near ubiquity and powerful influence of Masonry in American public life. And remember how we mentioned John Dickey's book, The Craft, would be our guide to the Masons? Well, we went straight to the source, and Professor Dickey was kind enough to explore many of the topics we're planning to cover here in a wide ranging interview, which we'll be interspersing throughout our Masonic discussions. Here, he tackles why Masonry was such a force in America historically reasons for their decline in influence over recent decades, and how that decline has affected their standings in the conspiracy
9: influencer Olympics. Freemasonry really finds its most fertile terrain in America. For a whole set of reasons, Americans are great joiners. The American population is very mobile and Freemasonry offers a kind of home from home in the local lodge, a ready-made social life it's a sort of welfare system a support system you know you you contribute to masonry and get back and so on and so forth and freemasonry has done an awful lot if you like to define and make middle class american manhood particularly really since the civil war there was almost a sort of golden century of fraternalism and lots of the other Brotherhoods, you know, the Moose and the Elk and the Rotary Club are, in effect, versions of the Masonic template. The Masonic fraternity is the mother fraternity of them all, with the biggest membership and so on. But it starts to decline uh, and declines very steadily, really, from the 1960s onwards with the growth of the financial industry and of welfare provision with women entering the workforce and, you know, the idea that the man could just get home and have a couple of cocktails and something to eat and then leave kiss his wife goodbye and go off to the lodge meeting for the evening comes to seem much more difficult to sustain. Young people start to feel a certain sort of distaste. that Freemasonry begins to seem a bit stuffy and that the membership starts to age and so on and so forth. So Freemasonry is declining in importance. It's certainly not going to go away. There are still something like a million of them in the United States, more than a million, you know, so that's not to be sniffed out, maybe six million around the world. And it's still a very powerful, meaningful force in a lot of people's lives. And we shouldn't discount that, you know, people really take their Masonry seriously and it gives a structure and meaning to their lives. Yes, I think it's harder to argue that, Freemasons are running the world when you don't have a Freemason as president and haven't had one since Ford. And yes, we've got plenty of other candidates with aliens and whoever else, pedophiles, whatever else, the Illuminati and the scientists in their dark laboratories or big government. So there are lots of other potential candidates now. They've proliferated while the Freemasons tend to be a bit lower in the mix. I think. That said, outside of the United States, certainly in Italy, in the United Kingdom to a slightly lesser extent, they are still very much thought of as a dirty cabal who were there to take control of the police and the judiciary and promote each other and make sure they aren't punished for any wrongdoing or anything like that as a sort of tool of corruption rather than of thoroughgoing conspiracy and that's a harder accusation to shake off because it's less obviously paranoid we
1: would be remiss if we did not at this point note that dickey's book is chock full of fascinating information like this and that you would be a fool not to purchase a copy
3: link of course in the show notes
1: so the masons are in decline but dickey's historically sound analysis of the reasons for this decline is not the only opinion out there Take, for example, the film Terra Masonica, a celebration of three centuries of the craft that saw the filmmaker Tristan Bourlard traveling to 80 different Masonic lodges throughout the world to document the varieties of Masonry practiced globally today. Rather than focusing on the ways that, for example, the rise of women's rights may have impacted the craft, the film takes the blame the millennials approach that has proved so popular in so many areas over recent years.
14: A major factor in, in the loss in membership is the sociological change of the societies in which we live. Uh, there was a day when there was a great deal of emphasis put on doing something for someone else. We've lost at least two generations of young men Uh, simply because the society is more self-centered than what we were at the time of our uh, great uh, numerical numbers within the craft.
1: While that explanation is unsatisfyingly pat, the film has many other merits and will be referencing it in the future. For example, it beautifully films the result that shrinking membership roles have had on the upkeep of the grand Masonic structures that were erected during the group's American
0: heyday. This staggering fall in the number of Freemasons is widespread throughout the Western world. Its main consequences is the difficulty in preserving an architectural heritage. In New York, many temples from this time have been abandoned, turned into discotheques or concert halls, or are awaiting a
3: buyer. One of the better music venues in SF is an abandoned Masonic hall called simply The Masonic where F.J., back in 2015, lived a lifelong dream by seeing the replacements during their abortive reunion tour.
1: That show fucking rocked. Thanks for declining, Mason dudes. That's the status of Masonry today. But how did it ever get to that near-ubiquitous mid-century peak of influence in American and global life? For that story, we're going to have to jump back to 17th century Scotland. As Dickey writes, There was a pre-existing substrate of lore among stonemasons in the British Isles long before any of the structures we'd recognize as proto-freemasonic were built up. This derives, he notes, from the fact that historically stonemasons had a fairly weak guild system in comparison to other crafts, like tanners, carpenters, etc.
10: Stonemasons across Britain made up for the weakness of their guild organisation by having an especially rich store of rules, symbols and myths. Known as the Old Charges. this Mason's lore was memorised and handed down by word of mouth. Human memory being the fallible thing that it is, the content of the Old Charges varied widely, as bits were added and subtracted, garbled and forgotten. Now and again, a version of the Old Charges would be written down. The first written text to have survived this haphazard process is in verse, making its 826 lines rather easier to memorize. It is famous to Freemasons the world over as the Regius poem. Its provenance and date are uncertain, probably Shropshire, maybe 1430.
1: Dicky goes on to note these old charges filter into Masonic history mostly through their creation of a totally mythical, truly ancient origin story for the trade.
10: The story's dramatis personae are plucked from a lucky dip of sources. Ancient Greek intellectuals rub shoulders with some of the big beards from Genesis and the Book of Kings. There are a few personalities who really count here because they would later be integrated into the legends of Freemasonry. One is Hermes Trismegistus, a learned man who, after Noah's flood, rediscovered the geometrical rules of masonry, which pre-flood masons had thoughtfully chiseled into two stone pillars. Euclid, the Greek mathematician, is the next great mason in line because he taught the ancient Egyptians all they knew about stonework, hence the pyramids. Then comes Solomon who employed 40,000 stonemasons to build his temple, that great summation of Masonic skill and learning. His chief mason was from Tyre. He will be given the name Hiram Abif in later versions of the tale. The same Hiram Abif destined to have a starring role in the Freemason's third degree ritual.
1: You'll recall that Hermes Trismegistus is a mythical figure, as is the story of Solomon's temple, which according to archaeologists was almost certainly not built by the biblical King Solomon. As for Hiram Biff, we'll discuss the weirdly important Masonic significance of that fabricated figure when we get to some of Masonry's secret rituals. Here we see what Dickey explains is a long-standing trait of Freemasonry, both the centrality of history to the group's sense of identity, but also their willingness to simply fabricate that history as needed to support the self-image they prefer.
9: One of the most fascinating things about studying the Freemasons is that they are an organisation for whom history is important. The history of their origins, their sense of tradition... When you study the Freemasons, you're studying a lot of narratives about the past, and a lot of them are false trails, if you like, or deceptive. The Freemasons have spent a lot of time kind of doctoring their past. They do it in the same way that a lot of other organizations do, that nations do. Freemasons write history with an agenda. And the agenda tends to be to sort of boost the prestige and esprit de corps of the Freemasons and to give a particular angle on Masonic history. Just to give you an example, the most convincing line back to the origins of the Freemasons that historians have been able to reconstruct, the real one, takes us back to Scotland at the very beginning of the 17th century, to the court of King James VI of Scotland. However, at the beginning of the 18th century, actually more than a century later, English Freemasons who kind of took charge of Freemasonry at that point and kind of refounded it, completely doctored the history and eliminated Scotland from the picture for various uh, political reasons. So it's taken quite a bit of digging to get past that. And the other reason is, of course, that Masonic rituals involve a lot of historical material. Through the centuries, the Freemasons have raided all kinds of religions and periods of history and belief systems in search of symbols for their rituals for example, at the beginning of the 18th century, it was argued that the Templars had had an important role in the origins of Freemasonry. Now, this was completely invented. There was no historical evidence for this. It was really just because the Freemasons liked the idea of having lots of swords and gauntlets and things in their rituals. But of course, they bought into this narrative, which still attracts a lot of people out there trying to link the original Masons to the Templars and so on and so forth. And of course, from the point of view of their enemies, the Catholic Church, for example, has often tried to trace Freemasonry's origins back to the earliest heresies, you know, in the sort of like the Manichaeans in the fourth century after Christ. And that's because the Freemasons themselves saw in the Manichaean worldview a source of images. So is this battle, if you like, of false histories?
1: So the old charges provided a powerful, if mythical, history for those who worked as Masons in late feudal period Britain. But as we alluded earlier, it's in King James's Scotland in the early 1600s when the historical origins of Freemasonry begin. Dana, can we get a brief recap on why this Jimmy fellow is so important to our tale?
3: Well, Jesuit, the famous Queen Elizabeth, the alleged Virgin Queen... Though Sir Francis Drake, among others, might contest that designation, left no heirs. So because she was the last of the legitimate Tudor line, her cousin James, who was known at that point as James VI, King of Scotland, became James I, King of England and Ireland as well. This was the first unification of the crown to Scotland and England. They would continue to be part of the same country, grudgingly on the Scots' part, down to the present day. Unless there was another referendum since we recorded this, in which case, all bets are off.
1: Right, and because James was practically born with a kilt on, he moved the political center of the unified kingdoms from London to Edinburgh and set his administration to work building a loyal corps of politically connected and prominent Scots to run the country and manhandle the recalcitrant English. One of the guys he hired to this end was William Shaw, a minor nobleman appointed Master of Works, or in the original accent,
3: Maester of Work.
1: As Dicky relates, Shaw was, like other intellectuals of his time, Fascinated by the rediscovered classical texts and art that were fueling the Renaissance, he was particularly moved by Vitruvius, a military engineer from the 1st century BCE, who argued that those who designed buildings must be not only builders, but also intellectuals. In a sense, the rediscovery and spread of his work marked the beginning of the modern discipline of architecture, and William Shaw would become the first person known as an architect in Scotland. Shaw began working to share his elevated view of their craft and its place in the life of the mind with influential master masons, culminating in a meeting in Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh.
10: This meeting would inject some of the most exciting ideas circulating in the Renaissance culture of James VI's court into the medieval lore of working stonemasons as embodied in the old charges. The result would be Freemasonry.
1: Shaw's new lodges were deliberately designed as autonomous groups that kept their cards close to the vest. They didn't check in with the local powers that be, and while they kept minutes of their meetings, those were for Masonic eyes only. Even then, they only recorded the nuts and bolts stuff. The secrets of the order were never to be committed to paper. This was all part of the plan, to get well-connected professional artisans, to buy into the idea of James as their new King Solomon, and of themselves as a secret society in touch with the most ancient and mystical wisdom. In a sense, flattering the pretensions of people who could help James consolidate his power.
10: It was a powerful pitch. But Shaw went even further, drawing on Renaissance culture to find things that appealed to the stonemasons. He stipulated that all masons and apprentices should be subjected to a trial of the art of memory and science thereof. Here was Shaw's most innovative move. Being a stonemason certainly entailed memorizing a great deal, not least the old charges. Shaw now told the masons gathered about him that they were not just remembering but practicing the art and science of memory. This
1: was a masterstroke. Not only were these masons now important allies of the king with their own secret society, but in fact...
10: Shaw was effectively telling the Scots stonemasons that they too were hermeticists. Though they had not realized it, they were right at the forefront of humanity's most exalted philosophical endeavor. Hermeticism chimed powerfully with many of the bits and pieces of folklore that were already there in the stonemasons' old charges. Arcane wisdom handed down since time immemorial. Hermes Trismegistus, the same wise man who, according to the old charges, had found Masonic wisdom engraved on a pillar after the flood. Secret societies devoted to the pursuit of occult truth, great buildings as stores of sacred knowledge, the art of memory, and then, of course, symbols. Symbols everywhere. The energy released by this confluence of the oral craft culture of the medieval stonemasons and the scholarly hermetic strand of Renaissance court culture was electrifying. The possibilities it opened up were endless. One consequence was that the stonemasons' lodge was soon transformed from just an organisation to a place that was as much imaginary as real, where masons could exercise the art of memory together.
1: Or, as he
9: elaborated in our interview, The real origins, very briefly, I think there's a single moment, a single spark, really. In late 16th, early 17th century Scotland, you have stonemasons, Who have, like stonemasons in a lot of Europe, a kind of folklore of their own. They like to believe that they're very ancient and they go back to the builders of Solomon's Temple and they associate themselves with the classical discipline of geometry. None of that's true, but it brings them prestige. At that particular moment in time in Scotland, an important figure at the court. Uh, James Shaw, sought to, as it were, make an alliance with the stonemasons, bring them on board. And what he sought to do as part of that alliance was bring them into certain crucial aspects of Renaissance philosophy, particularly the idea of hermeticism, the idea that the world could be decoded, the meaning of the universe could be decoded through symbols and through memory. There are other ingredients there because it's at this moment that the Masonic Lodge gets created as a kind of theatre of memory. I don't know if you've got the sort of picture in your head of what a Masonic Lodge looks like, but it's basically a little theatre where Masons carry out their rituals and it's got a kind of chessboard floor and various symbolic pieces, I don't know, globes and columns and lights and candles and things that you move around and rearrange for various symbolic purposes those symbols, that comes from this sort of disassociation with the Renaissance discipline of Hermeticism.
1: Shaw died in 1602, just a few years into his effort to transform Scottish Masonry into a political force. But his network lived on. Dickey notes that by 1710, there were around 30 lodges in Scotland, while no English lodges can be traced back before 1716. More impressively, 80-plus percent of those Scottish lodges still exist. They're the oldest in the world, boasting four centuries of unbroken history. And over the first of those centuries, the elevated air of mystery that was Shaw's gift to the masons began to attract gentlemen, in addition to the common workmen who were the original members. Still, Scottish masonry remained closely connected to the needs and concerns of working stonemasons. It wasn't until English lodges achieved primacy that Freemasonry, the version divorced in all but language and trappings from the discipline of stone cutting, would come into full focus. In the eye, in the eye of the There's no question that, as important as the U.S. is for the past century plus, England, and more importantly Great Britain's empire, would be the engine driving Freemasonry's adoption throughout the world. So it's worth understanding how this half-organized Scottish Lodge system turned into English Freemasonry, with its internationally codified rules, huge influence across diverse countries, an air of mystique and intrigue. The first concept the English Lodges added onto the ideas of the Scottish Old Charges is that of «acception». That is, the embrace of members who, rather than being stonemasons by profession, were accepted as part of the group, in spite of the fact that they didn't have the underlying profession and skill set.
3: These expanded lodges with their looser rules came to be known collectively as the exception, using the ACC spelling of that word.
1: And this innovation is surprisingly important because...
10: In England, it is only when the historical documents start mentioning accepted masons or a secret organization known as the exception that we can identify the immediate predecessors of today's brethren, because of the strong similarities between their rituals and those practiced both by the shore lodgers and by modern craftsmen. As the exception spread, more evidence of the secrets which must never be written leaked out. It was accepted masons of England who, over time, would make the name of freemasons their own.
3: So what caused this loosely associated group of Scottish masons with hermeticist aspirations to spread far and wide and have influence to this day?
1: Mostly, it boils down to the fact that the rich, cool kids of the early
9: 18th century decided masonry was the fucking tits, man. Gentlemen, intellectual fashion makes the mason's organizations begin to seem an attractive place to hang out. They have a tradition of religious tolerance, for example, at a very difficult moment for religious conflict. And so you start to get these organization lodges not just being meeting places for working stonemasons, but places where gentlemen and stonemasons together pursue more symbolic, moral, ethical pursuits, philosophical pursuits. And out with time, the gentlemen kind of take over. It takes a century and more, and Freemason really becomes a, a club. And turn it into a club they did. The key date is the 24th of June, 1717. 1717 is a very, very important date in the history of Freemasonry. In 2017, the United Grand Lodge of England, the sort of governing body of Freemasons in England, celebrated its 300th anniversary in June 2017, deriving itself from that date and what happened on that date, or what seems to have happened, is that we got the formation of a Grand Lodge, okay? So you have a whole set of local lodges spread across England and Scotland and other parts. This is the first time that we hear talk of a Grand Lodge, which is a kind of authority to regulate Freemason, to decide ultimately which rituals are legitimate and which aren't, who is really a Freemason and who isn't. This happened in London, in a tavern called the Goose and Gridiron, very near St Paul's Cathedral. And it is another very significant event that is surrounded by mystery and doctored history.
10: To expand on what interview John Dickey just said, here's book John Dickey. The famous meeting in the Goose and Gridiron was a turning point in the history of the craft, which is why it is so perplexing that we know so little about it. No material traces are left. The Goose and Gridiron and the other three pubs where the founding lodges met have long since been demolished. More curiously, the Freemasons, who are normally punctilious documenters of their own activities, have no contemporary records of the meeting. As we shall see, there are reasons to suspect a cover-up.
1: What do you mean a cover-up? Well, as interview John Dickey tells us, the recently empowered, more liberal by 18th century standards, Whig party, who were politically ascendant at that time, decided to establish an Uber Lodge that would have authority over the conduct of other lodges. And of course, they created this first ever Grand Lodge in their own image, removing or minimizing the contributions of other groups.
3: The Scots, for example, or the more conservative English Tories who have made enormous contributions to the burgeoning Masonic movement.
9: And I think what we see then is really politically motivated takeover of what is just then becoming called Freemasonry. By people close to the new Whig regime, the sort of German origin Hanover dynasty, who were wedded to the idea of a Protestant monarchy, as opposed to the Stuarts who'd come before them, who were suspiciously closely allied to Catholicism and to ideals of absolute monarchy. The Whigs really mounted a takeover of the state, of jobs in the universities, in the judiciary, all sorts of things, Whig placement, but everywhere. And the foundation of the Grand Lodge was really an attempt to take control of Freemasonry.
1: Now, all of this Whig intrigue and cover-up is all well and good, but it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans if Freemasonry hadn't prospered as a result and continued its influence down to the present day. Or at least, certainly, you wouldn't be learning about them on this show.
3: Yeah, we aren't going to spend hours investigating the hellfire clubs of 18th century England. Y'all had your chance to go big time back in 1719. You fucked it up, we're unimpressed. We
1: ain't got time for yo' trifling no conspiracy generating secret societies, yo! Wow. Got away from ourselves a little there.
3: Once again, he writes this crap, and I say it. I have no choice in the matter. Um, oh, sure, you could argue that I am morally culpable for his terrible jokes through tacit participation, and I may be consigned to one religion cell or another for executing the horrendous vocal impressions he demands. But he's an old friend. The kind who would actually take you seriously when you jokingly volunteer to do voiceover for his little podcast. I mean, really, what's the harm? He's a generally good dude. He's known my guy, LG Sweet, for decades, and honestly, how long can he possibly keep doing this? A long. Long time, it turns out.
1: Wow, Dana, that was a lot. I think we should all give you some space to explore your feelings.
3: But understand, people, he wrote all of that too. And this, you think you're hearing me complain. But instead, what you're actually hearing is him trying to guess when and how the audience might assume that a real life Dana unicorn would become frustrated with one or another of his self indulgent flights of fancy and then writing a weird meta-soliloquy for me to read complaining about that. But all of this is still being written and inserted into the show by him. These are not my words, but his. Please don't believe his artificial reality.
1: I admire your honesty, Dana. Thank you for helping me address these issues and really put this right.
3: You are writing and insisting I read this. It is all your fault. You are performing for the audience.
1: Oh, Dana, you truly are. The wind beneath my wings.
3: I am not singing that song, Jesuit. I have limits.
1: While Dana does her vocal warm-ups, let's return to the topic of the Whig recasting of the history of Freemasons and how writing the first edition of that history gave them the long-term upper hand. Book John Dickey?
10: By far the most important book in the history of the craft is The Constitutions of the Freemasons, containing the history charges, regulations, etc., of that most ancient and right-worshipful fraternity. First published in 1723, at the book's
9: core are the charges of a Freemason, the rule book that makes Masonry what it is. Interview, John. Any follow up? There was a lot of subsequent doctoring of the history. When the sort of Whig dominant faction within Freemasonry in 1723 published a new rule book and a new official history of Freemasonry called the Constitutions, they eradicated the Scots from the background. I think because the Scots were a bit politically controversial. But they also needed to cover up how political their takeover had been as well, because Freemasonry has very clear laws about not doing politics in the lodges. So there's a lot of murk and intrigue. But nonetheless, with this rule book. The Constitutions of the Freemasons, which incidentally was actually written by a Scotsman who then saw Scottish contribution to Freemasonry erased at the behest of, if you like, the English Whig Freemasons who'd commissioned a book. The book was very successful, spread Freemasonry around the world. Benjamin Franklin encountered it in London, took it to the United States published it in the United States, and that really started the ball rolling with Freemasonry in the United States. And in London, particularly, Freemasonry caught a wave, a cultural fashion for clubs and societies, For cultural life in taverns and coffee shops. It's no coincidence that the four lodges that got together to found this Grand Lodge in 1717 all carried the names of pubs. For social drinking in taverns and so on and so forth, for intellectual fashion, for networking. And Freemasonry really caught the mood in that sense. And that guaranteed its success, if you like. That really propelled it along.
1: Among the numerous ironies that have accrued to the success of the Constitutions, one big one is the fact that it was written in large part by a red-headed Scot named James Anderson, even though the Scottish origins of the craft were edited out by the same publication. It also minimized the influence of such important public masons as the legendary Christopher Wren, architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, simply because, as a Tory, he was seen by the ascendant Whig faction as the enemy. I mean, think about it. What better advertisement for membership in this new society that uses the building of structures as its organizing metaphor than a member who has single-handedly designed and overseen the construction of the most prominent cathedral of its time? And yet Wren is given short shrift in the constitutions by Whigs who control the nascent Grand Lodge.
3: So in other words, the brotherhood that is supposed to unify all men, regardless of race, profession, political stance, or creed, betrayed its own ideals from the very beginning?
1: Absolutely. Though it's not alone in hypocrisy. We hardly need mention the slaveholders across the ocean who a few decades later would pledge their very lives to the idea of all humans being created equal and the right to rule deriving from the consent of the governed. Dickie gave us some more insights into this revisionist tendency among Masons when it comes to their own history and how it has impacted the way modern brothers see themselves, as well as how society sees Masons generally.
9: The link with the guilds is rather more complicated than the Freemasons would have us believe. There's another one of these semi-mythical histories. They love to think of themselves as the descendants of the people who built the great cathedrals and all of that sort of stuff. And there's some sort of sense of dedication and purity that they see in that work, whereas actually the stonemasons were terrible at forming guilds. They were really bad at guilds. Other guilds were much stronger and much better candidates, if you like, for becoming something else and having a lasting historical legacy. The stonemasons, in as much as they were guilds, often included other people who had nothing to do with working in stone at all. It was this moment when the stonemasons moved closer to the court and closer to political power, when they formed these actual separate organizations, secret from the guilds in Scotland. So that's a messier business as well. And it's another episode where the Freemasons portray this sort of noble lineage from the honest toil of stonemasons to their own pursuits. But it's heavily fictionalised, shall we say.
1: He also helps us understand how the proto-Masons and early Freemasons hunger for a richer, more varied backstory for their group led them to incorporate an ever-wider array of ideas and cultural flotsam into their self-created legend.
9: After this sort of initial spark in Scotland where you get these elements of Renaissance culture and the folklore of stonemasons coming together, you then see a process whereby... Freemasons, although they're not yet called Freemasons uh, in Scotland, these lodges start to hoover up all sorts of different cultural elements that look like they might bring prestige and bring good raw material for Masonic rituals.
1: And that includes, of course, the Führer for a particular set of ideas of universal, intellectual, and spiritual brotherhood that it recently emerged from
10: Germany. Some of the gentlemen drawn to the lodges in Scotland and England may have thought they were joining the Rosicrucian order or something like it. And even if they did not, the Rosicrucian myth helped them add more layers of symbolism to masonry. For example, the ritual of Hiram Abiff's death and resurrection is thought to derive from
9: Rosicrucian necromancy. And the Rosicrucians are one of the earliest examples of this, where the Freemasons, if you like, start to almost deliberately confuse themselves with the Rosicrucians, when, in a sense, they've got nothing to do with them directly. There's this long, long long-lasting process whereby Freemasons of different strands, different branches of the Brotherhood, if you like, are looking around for interesting ensemble of symbols that they can appropriate and use. Rosicrucians are one. Ancient Egypt becomes one. Looks great. All of those pyramids and, you know, pharaohs and all of that kind of stuff. Fantastic symbolic material. Let's get them in as well, you know, the fashion in the late 18th, early 19th century for Egypt with the, you know, Rosetta Stone and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, we've got to have some Egyptian elements. It's more false trails, historically speaking. You can really just think of the Freemasons of treating everything they find in history books or fictions or whatever as potential material for a new symbolic system.
1: So the Brits took something over and acted like they invented it, not the first time. See, for example, tea. But the point here is that the amalgamation of myth and reality that was promulgated in London beginning in the early 18th century became a powerful magnet for ambitious young men throughout the empire and beyond. Book John
10: Dickey explains how. The craft caught the mood of the age. The galaxy of clubs that operated free of government harassment showed that Britain was a more open society than many on the continent. There was also a noisy press unhindered by official control. What Freemasonry did provide was training the practicalities of politics. The craft's highly formalized rituals and protocols gave men from various backgrounds a way to learn the manifold skills they needed to work in modern institutions, being discreet, making speeches, interpreting constitutional rules, advising younger brethren and judging their character. The aptitudes required by an open society could be learned within the closed space of a Masonic lodge. Just as importantly, the relatively narrow sample of men who frequented the lodges came to flatter themselves that they spoke in the name of universal values.
9: And it spread fast. I mean, it's astonishing how quickly it spreads around the world from that point. Within, what, 15 years of the publication of the rule book, the constitutions, you've got lodges in what would become the United States. You've got lodges in Charleston and in Philadelphia. You've got lodges in the Caribbean, in India in Europe, even in the Middle East, in places like Turkey and Syria. Freemasonry spreads on the currents of trade and empire, and it's really a movement that finds its moment, finds its historical moment then, and and really never looks back.
1: Okay, so Freemasonry spread like wildfire in the 18th century. What exactly does that mean? What was the craft? What are its definitional traits? We're going to run into a lot of references when we talk about how Masonic ritual and mythical history have inspired misunderstandings and conspiracies about the group, so it behooves us to take a moment to go over the actual mysteries and secrets guarded by this most impactful of secret societies. So, imagine you're a young man.
3: And yes, most versions of American and English Freemasonry continue to require, as they have since the beginning, that only men be considered for membership. We'll get back to the unfortunate history of Masonic attitudes towards other gender identities a bit later.
1: You're a decent bloke, and some friend or another recommends you for membership in the local lodge. You check it out and decide that the Masonic life is the one for you. How exactly, then, do you transition from run-of-the-mill hoi polloi to member of a select and legendary secret fraternity? The answer lies in the initiation ritual, which of course is supposed to be secret. But this being the era of the internet, every secret-having organization from the NSA to the Vatican to Scientology to innumerable hacked multinationals have discovered to their chagrin that secrecy ain't what it used to be. Rather than just go through the latest version of this ritual, we're instead going to use the example of one William Gull, initiated in or around 1842 into masonry before going on to become one of the most prominent doctors in Britain and the personal physician to Queen Victoria.
3: William Gull was definitely a prominent surgeon and physician to the Queen, as well as a seemingly forward-thinking and feminist dude for his time. He was the first to identify and attempt to treat anorexia nervosa as an illness-attacking young women back in 1873, and a campaigner for increased acceptance of women in the field of medicine. But he was not, according to the meticulous records kept by the Grand Lodge of England, ever a Freemason. would still going to go through this fictionalized initiation, with some supporting material from John Dickey's book. Because this Masonic version of the real-life Gull is going to come up in a super interesting historical conspiracy later, but we wanted to tell you about the real guy before we talk about the unlikely stories besmirching his good name.
1: So even though this Doctor Gull was probably not actually a Freemason, there's a very good fictionalized version of his initiation in the book *From Hell* by Alan Moore. So we're going to combine Moore's and Dicky's renditions to provide a super condensed idea of what Masonic rituals are like. Trust us, this focus on Gull will make sense later.
10: A man in an apron wielding a drawn sword makes you surrender your money, keys, phone, all the metalwork that anchors your person to the world outside. He blindfolds you. You feel your right sleeve being rolled up and the left leg of your trousers, so as to expose the knee. Your arm is taken from the left sleeve of your shirt, thus leaving your breast naked. A slipknot loop of rope is placed over your head. You step forward. Your life as a Freemason has begun.
1: At this point, another aproned man, holding a dagger, demands of the first,
10: Whom have you there?
2: Dr. William Gull, a poor candidate in the state of darkness, humbly soliciting to be admitted to the mysteries and privileges of Freemasonry.
1: The second man presses a knife to Gull's chest and demands, Do you feel anything? Gull answers, Yes. Dr. Gull, in all cases of difficulty and danger, in whom do you put your trust? In God. Then kneel upon your left knee, your right foot formed into a square. Take in your right hand the volume of sacred law, and in your left, these compasses, one point pressed to your naked breast. He does. Then recites. I, William Withy Gull, in the presence of the great architect of the universe, do solemnly swear to always heal, conceal, and never reveal the mysteries of free and accepted masons under no less a penalty than that my throat be cut across, my tongue torn out by the root, and that I be buried in sand a cable's length from the shore where the tide regularly ebbs and flows twice within 24 hours.
3: Wait, hold on, Jesser, what's with the violent retribution?
1: Yeah, kind of over the top, isn't it? But that's the Masonic Oath, or at least the version in circulation at that time. It's almost as if the sheer inanity of the Mason's secrets has to be bolstered with grand guignol theatrics in order to give them any weight. It's like a much more graphic cross-my-heart-hope-to-die-stick-a-needle-in-my-eye. So that gives you a flavor of the initiation for the first degree of masonry. The enlightened apprentice. At this stage, the initiate learns the sign.
3: That's the threat of violent death. The grip. The secret handshake, which is just a regular handshake, but you put your thumb on the knuckle of the recipient's pointer finger. Nothing too exciting.
1: And the word, which is... Boaz. Fun to say, and the name of one of the two pillars that, according to the Bible, stood in front of Solomon's Temple.
3: Remember all of the Solomon's Temple backstory we provided a while back? It's not just the Templars who were obsessed with it.
1: There's a whole lot more to the ceremony after this. The initiate learns about the tools of the craft, more symbols, and discussions of the various virtues like providence, benevolence, fortitude, etc. And there are additional rules. But after all of that, as Dickey notes, the new Mason may realize that for all of this talk, he's only learned secrets about secrets. Where then are the secrets themselves? Well, maybe there's more meat in the ceremonies for the other two available degrees in original recipe Freemasonry. The second designation is called Fellowcraft, and the ceremony is almost a mirror image of the first. The right leg, right side of the chest, etc. are bared. The Mason learns the name of the other pillar, Shashin, and the second level handshake,
3: Thumb on the middle knuckle. Riveting.
1: Oh, and this time he won't reveal the new secrets,
3: On pain of having his breast torn open and his heart plucked out
1: and eaten by vultures. But as far as learning real juicy mason dirt, it's bupkiss. Well, what about that third and final degree?
3: Ooh, Jesuit, this is some exciting shit. Shirt totally open, both knees bared, thumb between the middle and ring fingers? The secret word is mahabone, which sounds dirty, but actually has an obscure origin. It might mean the lodge door is open in some language or another. And this time, secret revealers are to be, quote, "...cut in two and have their bowels burned to ashes, which are then scattered over the face of the earth."
1: Delightful. But is that it? It turns out there's actually one more super weird part of the third-degree Masonic initiation that we're going to need to go over. The death of Hiram Abiff. there's a bit of confusion at the origin point for Ole Hiram. This is because, according to the Bible, Solomon the temple guy worked with another king who was named Hiram of Tyre, and who provided materials and workers for this temple that every secret society seems to get so worked up about. But there's a reference to another Hiram, whom the Bible notes was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, who was entrusted by Solomon to create detailed decorations for the temple. The rest of his legendary tale comes from the Masons, including the idea that Hiram's family name was Abiff. This legend is weirdly important to the Masons.
14: In Masonic teachings, Hiram Abiff is the architect of King Solomon's temple, and his story is one of faithfulness and death before dishonor. But more than that, Hiram Abiff is the template of excellence in Freemasonry and appears throughout the centuries in many Masonic degrees, in various guises, lessons, and references. A figure of virtue, justice, skill, and honor. If Freemasonry has a hero, that hero is Hiram Abiff.
1: In fact, that movie we mentioned earlier, Terra Masonica, points out that for hundreds of years, Masons have visited the purported locations of the quarries the stones for the temple came from and have covered the place with Masonic graffiti.
0: It's the Gate of Damascus where we find a little-known curiosity, Zedekiah's Cave, also known as King Solomon's Quarries. Masonic meetings have been held in these quarries since the 19th century. Generations of builders have cut this rock. It took centuries for Jerusalem and, so it goes, Solomon's temple to emerge from this cave. Many graffiti testify to the passion of Freemasons the world over for this highly symbolic place.
1: But the most important thing about Hiram Abiff and the story of the temple for the Masons is that, as Dana Big Unicorn Soprano will tell you,
3: You say what you want about Hiram, but that guy wasn't a piece of shit, dooly rat fuck. Three guys get the shit out of him cut out his fucking balls, and he still didn't say shit. Now let's a fucking stand-up pace on.
1: Yes, that's right. After all of the violent oaths swearing to keep the Masons' non-existent secrets, the centerpiece of the Master Mason Degree's initiation is a play about keeping secrets under pain of violent death. The candidate plays Hiram. He refuses the entreaties of three ruffians.
3: Ruffians? How English is that?
1: Just be glad they weren't hooligans, Unicorn. The
3: hooligans are loose. The hooligans
13: are loose. (laughs) What if they become ruffians?
1: Anyway, these three are traditionally named Jubella, Jubello, and Jubellum. These weird names will be important later. Anyway, these three scamps try to cajole Master Hiram to give up the secrets of masonry. He refuses, and shit goes real bad, real quick, as we'll hear in this video excerpt.
7: In Masonic ritual, three ruffians accost Hiram. It occurs during the dramatic play of the third degree of Freemasonry. The ruffians demand the secret word of a master mason. Hiram refuses to give it and accosts him his life. After a lengthy search of the body, Hiram's remains are finally discovered. King Solomon and Hiram King of Tyre, a different Hiram, raise Hiram with a master mason grip. It symbolically lifts him into this world of immortality. And it's a status earned in part by his integrity. After all, he kept the secret word a secret.
1: Here are some more quotes from the probably fictional initiation of Dr. Gull as Master Mason. Speak of thy interrogation. Thou, Jubello, did he tell you the word? I beat him
2: and tortured him, but he would not reveal the word.
1: Thou, Jubella, did he tell you the word? I tormented and vexed his inner spirit, but he would not reveal the word. And thou, Jubellum, did he tell you the word? I cut out his organs of generation, and he was mute. He did not reveal the word. You know what organs of generation means? You thought Dana got carried away with the, what was it? Fucking balls. Yeah, that was it. But no, that Jubellum motherfucker don't play. So fellow Masons portraying these three goons pretend to rough up the candidate in his role as Mr. Abiff, and then he dies and is placed in a canvas body bag and paraded around the lodge by other Masons. But the best part is he comes back to life at the end, thanks to a big hug and that magic Masonic handshake. And after some more ceremonial stuff, he's reached the pinnacle of so-called Blue Lodge Masonry. He's a master Mason, and he's got access to all of the secrets. Which are, Book John Dickey?
10: The ultimate secret of Freemasonry is... That death is a serious business, and it puts a perspective on things. That really is all there is to it. For all the layers and folds of mystery, Freemasonry's promise to reveal hidden verities turns out to be the wrapping for a few home truths. The craft, as the ritual for the second degree explains, is nothing more or less than a peculiar system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols.
5: That's
1: underwhelming. Sure. But while the ceremonies don't hide any important truths, the rituals and over-the-top oaths and play-acting all serve to elevate the sense of fraternity, and to add some pizzazz to the whole affair of being a Mason. As Dickey points out, each of our lives are full of rituals as simple and meaningless as slapping our palms together in appreciation of a performance, or saying God bless you when someone sneezes. Humans tend to like and get a lot out of rituals, even pretty simple ones, or ones that are kind of silly. Now that we understand the basics of masonry, let's check out some of the important historic events and conspiracies these kooky kids have gotten up to over the years. Let's get out of the way a particularly dumb theory we've alluded to in our Templar discussion by beating up on the very silly book, The Secret Societies of America's Elite by Stephen Sora. We suspected on site that this one would conveniently feed us a bunch of extremely credulous bullshit all in one package, and we weren't disappointed. Sora confidently asserts, without bothering to back up that assertion through any actual research or facts, that the Templars International Organization definitely survived the machinations of King Philip and turned into a gigantic underground network that spread its influence everywhere.
3: Again, actual scholars do not buy this thesis. Like, at all.
1: From there, he claims that a French family, the St. Clairs, who resettled in Scotland to become Clan St. Clair, are responsible for restoring and or restarting the Templars in Scotland. Now, a quick check of the Clan St. Clair website tells us, wait, Dana, could you explain this?
3: Ugh, what in the rubby burns is this shite? Oi, sorta, you booms out the window, you fandan. Bloody Normans named St. Clair were moving to the Highlands back in the 11th fucking century after a little thing called the Battle of fucking Hastings. Ring a bell, you numpty! And he talks about that bloody church, saying, Now, we are certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the starting place of Freemasonry was the construction of Rosslyn Chapel. Oh, yeah? Go back to the Templar discussion and you'll see that's bullshit, you fucking bum pot.
1: Having ignored Dana's advice, Sora goes on to still more weightless assertions about the Templar-Mason connection and beyond. For example, he suggests some Templars ran back over to France in time to be part of the army of Joan of Arc. Not a single footnote. Also, why would the Templars, who supposedly hate the Catholic Church, travel to France to fight on the side of a fanatically orthodox military leader?
3: Plus, they were a total boys' club, and she had girl cuties. Ew.
1: Sora settles down to argue that, mostly, the remnant Templars either fought as mercenaries or learned building trades. Uh Uh-oh, I see where this is going. Quote the man, Dana.
3: They often employed secret words and handshakes to recognize each other and come to one another's aid. Their sons, too, would keep up the tradition.
1: Again, the warrior monks just took up house with ladies and had a bunch of kids? I mean, if you're making this shit up with no references, Babylon, you vagabond. Then he suggests this bullshit as further evidence.
3: The term Freemason entered the English language in the same century that the Knights Templar, as an order, was officially dissolved.
1: So what? Exactly. Even if it's true, it doesn't mean anything. But then you can read further and learn that Freemason was actually a corruption of the original French. That the Templars called each other brother or frère, which, once they became bricklayers, became frère masson, and you get it. But there's more, of course. When the Templars traveled, they erected quarters, and these became lodges, so named after the French loge. The guard posted at the door of the lodge during meetings was the tiler in English, derived from tailleur, meaning one who cuts. But the term Freemason soon took on a whole new meaning, because unlike most of the populace, which was shackled to the land by the feudal system that prevailed in England and France, the former Templars became working craftsmen who were free to travel to find employment. Thus they were Free Masons. Couple things. First, this explanation for the origins of the term Freemason contradicts reliable sources. For example, Dickey identifies the term as having originally referred to to a top-tier stone carver who was trusted to create the most ornate and decorative freestanding elements of a structure, thus cutting free stone instead of laying bricks. He was therefore a Freemason. This term Freemason eventually was adopted by the group as it evolved into a gentleman's club. Now this derivation isn't certain, but it's a hell of a lot better attested to than the Frère Masson nonsense
3: which you'll note Sora actually undercuts immediately by suggesting the term actually referred to the non-peasant status of the Templar Masons. Well, which is it?
1: And while the term Tyler is not entirely understood, Tyur is not among the potential origins for the term that's listed on Wikipedia. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for Sora's suggestion. And yeah, lodge probably comes from the French loge, but about a third of English words have a French origin, so surprise, surprise.
3: But the main point is, there is not a single reference or suggestion of a reliable source of any of that shit we just discussed. History is easy, kids. Just write shit down with confidence and for God's sake, don't show your work.
1: Then it's on to other made-up connections. Why, Sora asks, when you're initiated, do you hear a promise that the brothers will protect you from your enemies and keep your secrets? What secrets could a simple stonemason peasant have to protect? Why would this man have enemies? Because in reality, he was a Knight-Templar dummy. They're the ones who needed protection. Of course, we just covered this. The Masons' grandiose initiation promises are the play-acting that helps form connections and brotherhood among men who were previously strangers. Their secrets do not in reality amount to much. But Sora wants to wring all the nonsense he can out of this formulation, so he just raises questions, like your formerly favorite aunt and uncle, who went to the University of Facebook and now know more about vaccines than qualified doctors and scientists. But our mentioning this book at all has been building to this point. Sora admits that not all Templars became Masons. Some, instead, became Jack fucking Sparrow. Here's how the story goes. Some Templars took to the seas under the flag with skull and crossed bones, which eventually came to be known as the Jolly Roger. Dana, if you please...
3: The skull and two bones, however, had a much deeper meaning to the original Templars who sailed under the flag. Their insignia represented resurrection. The Catholic Church taught that the resurrection of man was a bodily resurrection. But the Templars believed, contrary to the Church, that only a skull and two bones needed to be buried in order for a person to be admitted into heaven.
1: Also, the flag supposedly indicated that the Templars as a group had themselves been resurrected as feared pirates and thus were a new threat to their enemies, the Catholic Church, And the idea that the Templars would once again conquer.
3: Please note that the Templars didn't really conquer anything. They arrived after the First Crusades and were mostly trying to defend already conquered lands. But why cripple?
1: You will be shocked, shocked, to learn that Sora gives not a single reference for any of the above. You will be similarly shocked to learn that even a cursory review of the available mainstream history suggests... One... The legendary Templar fleet that definitely existed, according to Sora and numerous other conspiracist Templar researchers, has never been shown to exist. Two. There is only one confirmed Templar pirate, we even know his name, Roger de Flore. Super interesting guy, look him up. Three. The skull and crossbones Jolly Roger flag has nothing to do with the Templars or their theological resurrected body differences with the Catholic Church, but rather is thought to have derived from a flag flown earlier by Barbary Corsairs, a group of Islamic pirates who operated out of northern Africa.
3: That flag being a skull on a green background.
1: So that was some dumb fun. But now let's get back to another Masonic conspiracy theory that really had legs. The story of the real power behind the French Revolution. This one originated in the late 18th century and is perhaps the most important, impactful, unsupported allegation against the Masons ever leveled. Our setting is France in the wake of the revolution. This was the scary 18th century democratizing revolution coming over a decade after the far less terrifying rebellion that saw the formation of the United States. Dickey's book Synopsizes.
10: The French Revolution began in 1789, when a wrangle over tax between the king and the nobility... Exploded unexpectedly into the widespread and euphoric aspiration to create a new era of liberty. Sovereignty was to reside in the nation and not in the monarchy. Government was to be answerable to public opinion rather than to cliquish aristocrats and bishops. Rights would triumph over privileges. Never before had a society sought so completely
9: to reinvent itself. Remember the French Revolution, we sort of think of it now as being just one of those kind of events in history. At the time, it was cataclysmic. Every religious and social and political certainty seemed to have been thrown on a bonfire by the French Revolution. The link between God and the authority of the monarch had been broken. A king had been beheaded. Dangerous new ideas like democracy and the nation and so on New forms of religion that nobody could quite tell what relationship there were to traditional religion. Priests had been persecuted. The old order had never seemed to be so imperiled. War, of course, had spread across Europe. The mob seemed to be taking over. Conservatives, both religiously and politically, regarded this event with absolute consternation.
1: So the revolution was traumatizing not only to kings and queens who preferred to avoid, shall we call it, radical chiropractic? But also for socially and especially religious conservatives, watching in horror as time-tested institutions and dogmas were torn down, with chaos, fire, and bloodshed taking their place. Radical Jacobins remade everything, down to the fucking calendar, based on the idea that all existing ideas were bad and must be destroyed and rebuilt in the image of the
3: revolution. Oh, and at the same time, those Jacobins executed a campaign of reprisal and political murder that is appropriately known today as the Reign of Terror. So it's not
1: like these fears were unfounded. At least, that was until the Abbé Baroel came along.
9: The first person to really articulate a fully formed conspiracy theory was a paranoid former Jesuit.
1: Okay, accurate words to describe the man but that feels hurtful.
9: Who saw the machinations of the Freemasons behind everything bad that was going on in the world. His name was the Abbé Barwell. He was an exiled French priest living in London, a refugee from the French Revolution. And at the very end of the 18th century, he published this huge account of the origins of the French Revolution,
1: Barwell's spiritual mentor was killed in prison by the revolutionaries in 1791, eleven months before the paranoid former Jesuit himself decamped for friendlier English climes. He threw himself into composing memoirs illustrating the history of Jacobinism, which began appearing in print in 1797 and would eventually become a five-volume pseudo-historical screed.
10: Barrowell set out his thesis. Everything in the French Revolution, everything right down to the most appalling deeds, was foreseen, premeditated, arranged, resolved upon and decided. Everything was caused by the deepest wickedness because everything was prepared and directed by men who alone held the thread uniting the intrigues that had long been woven within the secret societies. The French Revolution was the result of a dastardly conspiracy by the Freemasons.
1: Obviously, we're not going to do a full history of Jacobinism or the other threads of political ferment that duked it out during the bloodiest days of the revolution. But the idea that this political party, or any other, was the result of deliberate behind-the-scenes manipulation by the Freemasons is absurd on its face.
9: Still, the appeal is clear. Conservatives, both religiously and politically, regarded this event with absolute consternation. For somebody like Barwell, it was demonic for that sense of complete, if you like, almost panic and disorientation that the French Revolution caused, a conspiracy theory which said, you know what, there is an explanation for all of this. And it's actually quite simple. It's the Freemasons. They're the ones who did it. And actually, they've been conspiring to do it since the very dawn of heresy in the 3rd, 4th century AD, its simplicity and the sheer volume of evidence that he produced, five volumes of it, it was one of those books, I think, which was more cited than read. Alas, I've read it. (laughs) That's a lot of my life that I won't get back. But the fundamental simplicity of the explanation had a kind of magic authority to it, that some people found exciting and reassuring at the same time.
1: Did you catch it when Dicky mentioned that Barrowell argued the Masonic conspiracy that led to the French Revolution had its origins in 3rd century heresy? Just like the Masons themselves, enemies like Barrowell can't resist pushing the influence of the Masons back to ancient history, giving their claims the weight of centuries of behind-the-scenes scheming and plotting by almighty, malicious secret actors. Barrowell's version traces Masonry back to Manichaeanism. The early
3: dualist philosophy we covered as part of the Cathars.
1: The original poison was the idea that Christ was not the only road to heaven, but rather one of several options, a philosophy Barrowell saw as directly connected to the Masons' founding ethic of religious tolerance. Then, of course, the Templars got in on the action after they were pretend destroyed and went on to form the Masons hundreds of years later in Scotland in a scheme similar to the one we addressed earlier. Barrowell suggested that the Masons' seemingly anodyne oaths and rituals were designed to quote,
3: seduce new members into imbibing ever larger doses of the craft's addictive ideology,
1: while at the same time providing cover for their terrible, secret, true purpose of corrupting Christendom
10: there then came the blood-curdling final disclosure the masonic watchwords of brotherhood and freedom so cozy and bland when first encountered actually meant nothing less than a secret declaration of war on christ and his cult war on kings and all their thrones this was the wicked mission that would be fulfilled in the french revolution
1: This show is frequently pointed to the protocols of the elders of Zion as the wellspring for much of the most pernicious 20th century conspiracy thinking. But Dickey makes a strong argument for that piece of malicious swill being heavily influenced by Barrowell's pioneering hackery.
9: That same appeal, I think, characterizes the conspiracy theories about aliens or whoever it might be, or the Jews or whatever, that are then reproduced on that same basic template of the original conspiracy theory, which is the Abbé Barouel on the Freemasons.
1: And like the assholes responsible for the protocols, the idea was to make people permanently afraid. The danger had not, and would never, pass.
10: Barouel had a warning for all those who observed the conspiracy unfold from abroad. They must not delude themselves that the danger had ended because the Jacobins, the most radical of the revolutionaries, had fallen from power in 1794. The conspiracy was international. It was only just beginning, and it was coming for your children. If Jacobinism triumphs, then that is the end of your religion, your laws, your property, of all forms of government and civil society. Wealth, fields, houses, right down to the humblest cottage. Children, nothing will belong to you anymore.
1: Thankfully, we as a society have long since progressed beyond this sort of open-ended, fact-free, fear-mongering.
10: The point of mandatory
7: vaccination is to identify the sincere Christians in the ranks, the free thinkers, the men with high testosterone levels, and anyone else who does not love Joe Biden, and make them leave immediately. It's a takeover of the U.S. military. Illegal immigrants are
1: burglars, are thieves who are there to harm your security and steal your prosperity. What's happening at the border is a flat-out invasion. We are being overwhelmed every day. As the illegal invasion at our southern border intensifies, it is an invasion.
14: And I'm going to call it an invasion,
10: like it or not.
7: This is the Muslim Brotherhood plan. It always has been. You set up these enclaves in the West... You demand of the host country that they allow you to run your affairs according to Sharia. When
6: Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs.
7: They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people.
1: How did Barrowell come upon this supposed knowledge? Because he himself had been a Freemason. Or so he claimed. But don't worry, he never swore any oaths or anything. Which, if that's the case, how was he ever a mason? But he also learned all about the most dastardly shit from secret sources he was unfortunately unable to name. Oh, and he lost the most damning evidence he had collected before his book was even published. Aww, bad luck. So obviously, the book has problems. But what's it like to read it? Well, we gave it a shot. It's available on Amazon Kindle. And we even perused the shockingly similar yet unrelated book... Proofs of a Conspiracy, another nutso classic from the same era with an extremely similar thesis, but this one written by a man named John Robison. Again, though, we love you, our loyal audience. But that love has limits. So we gave up. Fortunately, as he mentioned in our interview, John Dickey, for his sins, did indeed read all of Barrowell's work. His review?
10: Memoirs illustrating the history of Jacobinism was idiotic. It has nothing to contribute to our understanding of the causes of the French Revolution, yet it does still have much to teach us about how conspiracy thinking makes complex events seem simple and makes us feel clever for oversimplifying them. At a stretch, the most that any modern historian of the French Revolution would be prepared to concede to Barrowell's analysis is that the formal equality of lodge procedures was one of the many influences that went into the emergence of the political clubs, including the Jacobins, that were so important to the events of the 1790s. That said, there is no more powerful way to demonstrate the febrile idiocy of any explanation of the French Revolution as a Masonic conspiracy than to follow what happened to many brothers after 1789.
1: Yeah, what did happen to Masons in the wake of the Revolution? Oh, really? Seems weird the Masons would be among the groups most persecuted by the Jacobins and other revolutionaries if the whole Michigas was secretly created and guided by the Masons in the first place.
3: Barrel would probably tell you it's a misdirect, letting a few Masons go to the guillotine to keep the secret.
1: In other words, hand-waving bullshit. Admittedly, Barrel had done his research in terms of understanding Masonic history. It's just that, as Dickey puts it,
3: he squeezed, twisted, and cropped it to fit his monomaniacal vision.
1: Before we move on, we should note that we'll be coming back to Barrel and his unwieldy tome for our final topic in this series, the Illuminati. They, even more than the Freemasons, were to Barrel responsible for the horrors of the Revolution. But in the meantime, we want to focus on one part of his argument, that the standard three degrees of Blue Lodge masonry were just there to lure in unsuspecting Christians so they could be put to work by those who had graduated to masonry's much more exclusive, more important, more secretive, and presumably more nefarious, higher degrees.
3: But if there are only three degrees in standard masonry... And there are. Then what the fuck is he talking about?
1: He's talking about the other major threat of masonry. One that is uniquely French in origin, despite its name, and one that has inadvertently driven the conspiracist mythos around the craft to new heights. Scottish Rite Masonry.
3: You say it's French, but then you say it's Scottish. Which is it?
1: Well, the name is part of the fun. This branch dates back to December of 1736, when a Scots mason named Andrew Michael Ramsay delivered a speech to a major convention of French masons. The speech, which he thought would convince the national authorities that the craft was compatible with Catholicism, and therefore the king's goons would be encouraged to ease up on all the persecuting. The speech actually spurred a series of police raids on local lodges, and Ramsay stopped doing anything too masonry to ensure he didn't get in further Dutch with the crown. But if the speech was initially a failure, it ended up having a huge effect on how masonry was practiced in France.
10: Much of it was pretty standard fare, but Ramsay also deviated from the Constitution's narrative in one highly significant respect. He worked in the Crusaders. He claimed that crusading knights rediscovered the secrets of Solomon's temple and the craft while they were in the Holy Land and used them to revive the sense of Christian mission that had first inspired them to capture Jerusalem for Christ. Ramsey explained that the Masonic Crusaders had vowed to rebuild the temple and imitate the Israelites by wielding the trowel and mortar in one hand and the sword and buckler in the other. In invoking the Crusaders and with them the culture of medieval chivalry, Ramsay tapped a vast source of imagery and myth that would soon generate a complex of Masonic degrees known as the Scottish Rites. Why Scottish? The reasons are tenuous. Ramsay's new Crusader myth attributed a key role to his homeland in preserving and transmitting the Masonic tradition. When the Holy Land was all but lost, in 1286 a leading knight brought the craft's mysteries back to Scotland for safekeeping. The connection is no closer than that. In reality, the origins of the Scottish Rites are entirely French. So Scotland's real role in the development of Freemasonry, having been expunged from the record by the Constitutions, made a return in France in an entirely mythical guise.
1: So we can trace the Masons-Templars connection back to one Mason's speech from 1736. Apparently all similar tales, including Barrowell's, sprung from this event. But what effect did this regrounding of the Masons in the exploits of the Crusading Knights have on how French Masons masoned? There were two main impacts. The first was a drastic increase in the number of degrees offered by various lodges. Shortly, there were three new side degrees available in France, all based on this new, heroic, knight's errant, faux history for the group. Then there were five. Then seven. By the mid-18th century,
10: The most authoritative history of French Freemasonry has referred to a tropical forest of degrees that sprouted from the 1750s.
1: Suddenly, Scottish Rite Lodges could offer as many degrees as their feverish members could dream up. Here are some of our favorites.
3: Elect philosopher knight, knight of the Argonauts, Scotsman of the Scottish Academy, Scotsman of the celestial Jerusalem.
1: Remember, these degrees were initially available only to French Freemasons. Continue.
3: Master of Esmeralda's Table, Companion of Paracelsus, the Rite of the Blazing Star, the Illuminated Theosophers, the Architects of Africa.
1: Badass, no? Which reminds us, recall when we were talking about Tobias Churton, one of the authors who led us through Rosicrucianism, and we mentioned to Dana's dismay that he was
3: a perfected knight of the rose, Croix and the pelican, 18th degree, ancient, and accepted right.
1: As you might expect then, that designation is not issued by some Rosicrucian governing body, but rather is one of the branches of Scottish Rite masonry that has embraced Rosicrucian symbology as part of its identity.
3: It does seem like more fun to be in the group that has all of the cool titles, rather than the three-degrees-only fuddy-duddies.
1: You're certainly not alone in that assessment, Dana. In fact, one of American history's most famous Masons, Benjamin Franklin, was initiated into one of the most notable Scottish Rite Lodges, the Nine Sisters, while he was working to gin up support among Parisians for the American Rebellion. And a celebrity even closer to our hearts, Voltaire, was initiated near his death, leaning on his friend Franklin's arm during the ceremony and we'll see a bit later that the Scottish Rite version of Freemasonry would have a huge role to play in the ongoing racial schism among American Masons that persists to this day. The point is that all of Barrowell's carefully, tediously laid out arguments about the Templar and Manichaean history of Freemasonry was simply, as Dickey puts it, buying into the Scottish Rite Masons' own myth-making. This is probably a great time to come back to that issue of how the Masons deal with women, because in many ways France and French Masons have been at the center of this topic. The obvious question hanging over the whole discussion is, why could fearful Jesuit become a Freemason while Danny Unicorn could not?
3: Can we please note at this point that while I too question why this society should be exclusively male, I have no actual interest in becoming a Freemason?
9: Stipulated. But why can't she? The Constitutions of the Freemasons of 1723 that I mention is the first document that actually explicitly says women aren't allowed to become Freemasons. And it's always been something that the Freemasons are very uncomfortable about. It's caused great schisms and fissures within Freemasonry. There have been, particularly going in the 20th century, various sort of adjunct bodies to Freemasonry in which women have been allowed. Some now accept women on an absolutely equal basis to men and have mixed lodge meetings and so on. I'm thinking, for example, of the Grand Orient of France, the biggest Masonic tradition in France. But they only did that in, I think it was 2010.
3: They didn't have time to go into this part of the story during the interview. But the reason the Grand Orient Lodge changed its policies was because an existing member, Olivier Chaumont, announced herself as trans and asked to be recognized as a woman Freemason, just as she had been previously accepted as a man. When they accepted her, they also accepted future women as part of the deal.
1: Right. And even in those places where the Freemasons have gotten on the gender equality bandwagon, it's not all wine and roses.
9: In those branches of Freemasonry these days where women are let in, there's a glass ceiling, a very clear glass ceiling. They don't occupy positions of power in Freemasonry as a whole. So there's a very mixed picture, and Freemasons are quite defensive about this idea that they don't exclude women.
1: Still not a great look, even for the more egalitarian lodges. Meanwhile, aside from adjunct groups like the Order of the Eastern Star, which was specifically designed as a sort of auxiliary for women who wanted to be Masons, were relatives of Masons, but obviously couldn't be Masons because vaginas caused lodges to burst into flames or something. So unfortunately, we don't have too much that's interesting to say about the relationship of women and Freemasonry. For the most part, the dudes are keeping them out for no good reason, which is probably contributing to the decline of the craft overall. But we did want to make sure we got to include this fascinating story about an extraordinary person and her role in the Masons way back in the 18th century.
9: The Chevalier d'Eon is a fascinating character, one of those unique 18th century figures. French, but spend a lot of time in London as a spy and diplomat who joined the Freemasons in London. And subsequently went on to cause a great deal of an awkwardness and embarrassment for Freemasons because she liked to dress as a woman and cultivated, shall we say, a great deal of doubt about her body, you know, whether she had a female or male sexual organs. And a huge betting market grew up in London around the question of whether she really was a man or a woman, a figure that many of the great literary figures and people commented on at the time, eventually went back to France and was ordered by the government to keep dressing as a woman, not to change, which she doesn't seem to have found a particular hardship, lived as a woman continued to be a Freemason in France, even though Freemasons weren't allowed to be women in England. In France, there was a kind of subordinate branch. They were more tolerant, shall we say. And then eventually, when she died, a post-mortem examination revealed that she had a male body, if you like. Now, it's very difficult looking back in history to put our categories on is this somebody who was a transsexual or transvestite or some sort of trans identity, because this was somebody who was carrying a lot of scandals around with them and it was quite convenient to be able to, as it were, disappear into being a woman at a certain point in her career. She's a fascinating character and a fascinating illustration of the gender trouble that has dogged Freemasonry from the outset. Wow.
5: Mason loves his work.
1: turn our attention to the Masons in the fledgling United States. We already talked about how the influence of Masons in early America was important and suspect enough to drive the creation of an entire political party.
3: See our discussion of the anti-Masons in our historical political conspiracies topic in the almighty RSS feed.
1: And we know that many founding fathers were Masons, In fact, Dickey's book relates in detail the impressive and overwhelmingly Masonic procession that preceded the laying of the cornerstone of the Capitol building in 1793. In our interview, he expanded on the importance of the craft in early American ceremonies like these. Now,
9: at this point in the early American Republic, Freemasonry enjoys enormous prestige. Freemasons are like the impresarios of public celebrations up and down America. Freemason lodges are very, very popular. George Washington had used Freemasonry as a sort of ceremonial special team, if you like, for the laying of stones and the inaugurations and so on and so forth. Because Masonry, like the United States was sort of religious but non-denominational. And so it made a perfect kind of ecumenical ceremonial language. You know, when early America wanted to talk to posterity, they did so through the good offices of the Freemasons. Here we are laying a stone, laying a foundation stone for something for future generations and so on.
1: The book elaborates on how Washington, a nebulously religious man, seemed to believe that through its very ecumenicalism, Freemasonry could bind a fledgling democracy via the promotion of non-sectarian virtue.
10: Freemasonry opened its doors to men of all faiths. It embraced only that religion in which all men agree, in the usefully vague formulation set out by the constitutions. Washington's own religious beliefs put him at Freemasonry's spiritual center of gravity. He has been described as a lukewarm Episcopalian who never went to communion and generally invoked providence and destiny rather than God. He was less concerned about personal piety than he was about religion's role as a guarantor of public morality. The fledgling United States also needed something else that Freemasonry could supply, virtue. Republicanism, the ideology to which Washington and the other founders subscribed, had a history full of stern lessons. Everywhere from ancient Athens and Rome to Renaissance Italy and Oliver Cromwell's British Commonwealth, the attempt to set up a system of government without monarchy had collapsed. The only hope for a modern republic like the United States was that the population, and in particular the governing class, could learn enough virtue to resist the slide into tyranny. Since its inception, Freemasonry had presented itself to the world as a builder of virtuous men.
1: Now, with the importance of the craft to the early republic established, it's time for us to turn our attention to another book we came upon during our research, which has other interesting things to say about the early leaders of the USA and the importance of Freemasonry.
3: If you can't hear the glee in his voice, rest assured, it's cuckoo time.
1: This book, Founding Fathers' Secret Societies by Robert Hieronymus, PhD, starts out rather cautiously on the subject. It acknowledges that while such key founding fathers as Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, and Adams were suspected of being part of either the Rosicrucians or the Illuminati, the only evidence comes from the organizations themselves, whatever that means, or other, quote, unverifiable sources. Okay, good. An acknowledgment that there aren't good sources for these rumors, but that they're worth mentioning. We're on board. And the author is admirably focused on the ways in which the civilization of Native Americans likely impacted and influenced the evolution of the ideas that came to underpin American democracy. He also points out that unlike African Americans, Native Americans were semi-regularly admitted into American masonry. But of course, then he's got to make it weird. For example, he tells a story of a Native chief being initiated into the craft, after which that chief offers to initiate the Englishman who has conducted the ceremony into his own tribe as a medicine man. The original account quoted indicates that the Masonic and Native ceremonies are remarkably similar to each other, as they both involve three levels of initiation, for example. Hieronymus clearly wants us to think that this means there was a very early and unknown link between Native American society and the Freemasons, but that argument doesn't pass the smell test. So both groups have rituals that involve three stages. What can we conclude from that? Many human activities involve repetition with variations, especially in groups of three.
3: Remember the horror-comedy Rule of Threes? Use of three repetitions or variations in rhetoric and other forms of speech are well-established and effective techniques.
1: And the story dates back to the late 1860s, by which time Masonry and Native traditions had encountered and been influenced by each other for better than a hundred years. But the author has his own explanations, which we'll make Dana read here.
3: Theories abound as to how the American Indians may have been introduced to rites and rituals similar to Freemasonry. Some say that Freemasonry ultimately originated in an Atlantean culture that spread both to the West and to the East at its destruction.
1: Mm, Atlantis theories. Delicious.
3: Alternatively, the Native Americans may have inherited these secret rites from one of the many pre-Columbian settlers of America.
1: Sure, except there was no such thing as Freemasonry that could be exported from Britain until 1723 at the earliest, so pre-1492 transmission seems unlikely.
3: Another theory has American Indians descending from the Lost Tribes of Israel, pointing to the similarities between both groups' ideas for holy of holy sanctum, a succession of high priests, rituals of purification and anointing, and particular habiliments inherited from the fathers of remote antiquity.
1: But how many non-Native American, non-Jewish ritual traditions include some or all of those traits? No answer. How about the fact that Natives don't speak any semblance of Hebrew or didn't worship Yahweh or Jehovah? For fuck's sake. But here's the pure uncut shit.
3: After studying inscriptions and numerous coins and artifacts, Dr. Barry Fell concluded that America's visitations started by at least 325 to 250 BCE with the Carthaginians and Phoenicians. They were followed by Libyan Greeks in 264 to 241 BCE and Roman traders from 100 BCE to 400 CE. Jews settled in Kentucky and Tennessee by 69 CE, with the second wave of refugees arriving in 132 CE. Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Treasure of King Juba, lays a compelling case for the settlement of Africans from Mauritania from around the same time. Robert Schock, writer of Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, Show how primeval sailors traveled from the eastern continents, primarily Southeast Asia, and spread the idea of pyramids across the earth, involving the human species in a far greater degree of contact and exchange than experts have previously thought possible. Yet another theory suggests that the Native Americans obtained their Masonic knowledge from a renegade Mormon lodge in Idaho that lost its dispensation in 1842
1: to 1843. Whoa, 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 wait, hold up there. Those were a whole bunch of claims, but there was one of them that was far more plausible than the rest. Who can tell me what it is? Raise your hands. Okay, hold your horses, Miss Holman. Mr. Burnett, I see you back there, but give someone else a chance. Next time, Mr. Brokaw. Okay, let's let teacher's pet Dana Unicorn take this one.
3: I think the most plausible one is that last thing about the Mormons. Since, you know, they actually existed and interacted with real None made up versions of Native Americans in the decades before the 1860s.
1: Great answer. The whole class gets cookies. (laughs) After all of this bullshit, he states as fact the fringe theory that the Templars directly evolved into the Masons. Worse, he quotes David Barton as a source. Barton is a pseudo-historian with no relevant training or credentials, and a hack shill for the Christian right whose career is devoted to pretending the U.S. founding fathers intended for the nation to be avowedly Christian. A notion that runs counter to all of the historical evidence. But our favorite, favorite, favorite thing is that the book goes on to produce evidence in the form of an astrological analysis of the life of George Goddamn Washington. This analysis was, we are assured, prepared by none other than Maggie Herskowitz, CA NCGR, helpfully spelled out as Certified Astrologer, National Council for Geocosmic Research.
3: So she's totally qualified in an imaginary discipline by a certifying organization made up of people who have less of a body of knowledge than a set of shared delusions. Rad.
1: We want to quote the whole thing, but that would bore everyone except me, so here's a tasty morsel about how Washington's character was guided by the stars.
3: These abilities were tempered and structured by his lunar placement in the sign of Capricorn, the sign of structured hierarchical form, which gave Washington organizational stability. The ability to take abstract ideas and structure them into a philosophical system of life shown by the moon in the ninth house, the house of higher-minded philosophy. With Taurus as an ascendant, the president's demeanor would have been slow, thorough, and patient.
1: Presumably, though, not patient enough to put up with this twaddle. Moving on from this very important and well-researched tome, let's turn our attention to the Mormons we briefly touched on moments ago. We already covered the anti-Masonic party and the murder of William Morgan.
3: See our historical political conspiracy series for detailed discussion.
1: But John Dickey clued us into another all-American group that interacted in some interesting ways with the Masons. And I believe
5: that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon.
2: From the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
1: Yes, the Masons had quite a series of run-ins with the most American of all sects of Christianity. And of course, because Joseph Smith's church was developing around the same time that anti-Masonry swept through the young nation, Dickey explains how these stories fit together.
9: The tangled, and I have to say rather comic story that links together the history of the Freemasons and the history of the Mormon church really begins in upper New York State in 1825 with the disappearance of a Freemason called William Morgan. In upper New York State, which was swept by waves of religious fervor and so on, I think the most likely explanation is that some Freemasons took the oaths of Freemasonry very literally. When you join the Freemasons, you swear to protect certain secrets, and they are deeply banal secrets, on pain of being tortured to death effectively, a pain of a horrible death. This rather 'er ne'er-do-well drunken Freemason called William Morgan threatened to expose the secrets of Freemasonry and disappeared. And I think the most likely explanation is that he was disappeared by other Freemasons who had taken what is actually a kind of symbolic theatre. These threats are never meant to be carried out in Masonic ritual. They're just a symbolic game, if you like. I'd taken them literally. Now, the Morgan disappearance led to a wave of anti-Masonic hatred across America. Freemasonry was thrown into crisis. An anti-Masonic party was formed. An anti-Masonic candidate stood for president. And Freemason membership plummeted. The reputation of Freemasonry was catastrophically damaged and would take a whole generation to recover. Now, at precisely that moment, Joseph Smith claims to have discovered these golden tablets on which the angel Moroni and, you know, so I won't go through the whole story. Now, a lot of the material for that fable that he invented, I don't take his story seriously for a minute, with apologies to Mormons out there, but I'm afraid I don't. A lot of the material, Derives from the kind of folklore and what was happening in upper New York State. At the time, for example, there are a lot of buried remains of ancient Native American civilizations that kept surfacing. Stories were told of these ancient peoples in America who'd fought great battles and so on and so forth. And also, among the ingredients of Smith's myth making, the buried tablets and holy tablets and so on, were elements of Masonic ritual as well. And in the Book of Mormon, as he transcribed it from these golden tablets with the magical spectacles that he found that allowed him to translate them out of Hebrew, the Book of Mormon is a sort of Bible, an Old Testament, if you like, a a new Old Testament, talking about one of the tribes of the people of Israel who supposedly came to America and had this whole Old Testament style succession of battles and things in Upper New York State, effectively. And the Book of Mormon contains lots of stories that have very clear echoes of the anti-Masonic mood. For example, there's the they call the Gadianton Band. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Some of the episodes revolved around this Gadianton band who are basically Freemasons. You know, they wear aprons and they have secret oaths and signs and stuff like that. And they're among the baddies. In other words, in founding his religion, Smith is plundering Freemasonry for his enemies, if you like, in that climate of anti-Masonry at the time. Dickie's book goes on to note,
10: It hardly needs exceptional scholarly acumen to work out where the idea came from. And it came to pass that the Gadianton robbers did have their signs, yea, their secret signs, and their secret words, and this that they might distinguish a brother who had entered into the covenant, that whatsoever wickedness his brother should do, he should not be injured by his brother, nor by those who did belong to his band who had taken this covenant. The Gadianton robbers fill the judgment seats, having usurped the power and authority of the land. They also have a lambskin about their loins, an obvious echo of the white lambskin aprons worn by masons.
3: So the Mormons end up with a theology in which the Masons are the bad guys. Hmm. Sounds a lot like the Catholic Church, no?
10: Well, it would if it
1: stopped there, but it turns out that Smith's nods toward anti-Masonry weren't the extent of his thoughts on the subject. He, in fact, ended up promoting the Masons among his followers. The imprimatur of the prophet meant that by the 1840s, there were more Mormon than non-Mormon Masons in Illinois, for example. And as Smith's followers embraced the craft, he embedded Masonic ritual deep in the heart of his group's spiritual practice.
10: He re-elaborated Masonic ritual into a Mormon version known as the Temple Ceremony, a highly sacred blessing that was soon open to women as well as men. The walls of Latter-day Saint temples would display Masonic symbols, such as the square and compass and the all-seeing eye. Those undergoing the Mormon Temple Ceremony were presented with new undergarments, with the signs of the square and compass stitched over the left and right breast. The temple ritual contained these and other elements familiar from Masonic degree rituals, a secret handshake known as a grip, which involved pressing the thumb to the space between the knuckles of the index and middle fingers, the donning of aprons, oaths of secrecy reinforced by the threat of bloody punishment, which was illustrated by gestures, for example, the hand drawn across the throat to mimic slitting, it has been suggested that one reason Smith introduced these oaths was to force Mormons to guard the secret of polygamy, since celestial marriage, which was often polygamous, formed part of the temple ceremony too.
9: As his religion begins to spread, and he begins this strange epic trek around, you know, being chased out of different parts of the country, he starts to actually look again at Freemason, and Mormons start to join Masonic lodges, and they start, more importantly, to start pinching elements of masonic ritual for their own rituals one of the most important ceremonies in mormon religion the temple ceremony is closely based on masonic rituals and even to this day when mormons go through this ritual they don a sort of pair of sacred pajamas you could call them undergarments which have on them the masonic symbols of the square and compass Dickey is hardly
1: alone in noting the close connection between the temple ritual and Masonic initiations. As quoted in H. Paul Jeffers' book, Mormon and historian Reed C. Durham Jr. insisted back in the 70s,
3: There is absolutely no question in my mind that the Mormon ceremony, which came to be known as the endowment, introduced by Joseph Smith to Mormon Masons initially, just a little over a month after he became a Mason, had an immediate inspiration from Masonry.
1: Though, apparently, this view did get him in hot water at the time with church authorities.
9: Now, it hasn't escaped the Mormons that a lot of what they do is very closely related to the Freemasons. But what they say is, no, we're the originals. The Freemasons copied their rituals from us because our rituals go back, right back to ancient Israel and the building of the temple and Solomon. So we're the real genealogy of the rituals. And the Freemasons have just copied them. So we're the real article, if you like.
10: The temple ceremony is still today very much as Joseph Smith designed it, despite the fact that in 1990, the terrible Masonic punishments, throat cutting and the rest, were quietly dropped. Most Orthodox Mormons are as unperturbed as was their prophet by the similarities between their religion and Freemasonry. Smith presented his temple ceremony as a faithful restoration of the rituals practiced by the Israelites, from Solomon all the way back to Adam. By contrast, Masonic degree ceremonies, he explained, were only a later degenerate version of those original Israelite rituals. If anything, therefore, it was the Masons who copied the Mormons and not the other way round.
9: So it's a really curious, complicated story of essentially different thefts of ritual ideas and story ideas from both Freemasonry and anti-Freemasonry. And remember, of course, both Freemasonry and anti-Freemasonry themselves have stolen ritual ideas and so on from the sort of flotsam and jetsam of religion and history and thought and literature and so on over the centuries. There's one more almost unbelievable aspect
1: to this story before we move on. Remember Henry Morgan, the blabbermouth who disappeared after threatening to publish The Secrets of the Freemasons? The one whose disappearance and likely death launched the anti-Masonic fervor in the US? Well,
9: one of the kind of many really strange paradoxes of this story is that Joseph Smith, among his many wives... Was the widow of that Freemason, William Morgan, who had disappeared back in 1825 for betraying the secrets of Freemasonry. Super strange, but also true.
0: On a tour of Hawks, where they pass the ancient wheel. Hill to Christ Church, beating all the Beatles. For Blake's grave, too, the works of so Ren. With Bentley and some deadly and Masonic Tour of Sin. His grand work, it won't be topped.
5: It's too far along. Just a few more stops left John Jamu.
1: While we're still in America, we should probably touch on one of the biggest ways that our nation's particular form of schizophrenia led to a uniquely bisected version of Freemasonry, one white, one black. And there are two elements vital to both stories. One, the expanded, mystical, uniquely French version of Masonry that is confusingly called the Scottish Rite. And second, the beautiful South Carolina city that also served as the perfervid, pro-slavery heart of the Confederate rebellion.
9: Freemasonry is an absolutely sprawling subject. It's so international, so many different manifestations and forms, you couldn't hope to cover it in 20 encyclopedias. So my book is a selective one, and I choose particular moments in time to bring to life important aspects of Masonic history. And one of those places and times is the city of Charleston, South Carolina, in the middle of the 19th century, the sort of antebellum, Civil War, Reconstruction period. And the reason why Charleston leaps out and brings different stories into focus, first is that it's a very important place in the history of what's called the Scottish Rite. As the book explains, a French count named
3: Comte Alexandre-François-Auguste de Grastilly
9: was the first
1: to bring the Scottish Rite to Carolina in the 1780s as part of his globetrotting effort to unify the wide variety of exotic degrees we discussed earlier into a simple 33-degree system. The most important of his supreme councils, designed to keep the regional lodges in
9: line, was
1: housed in Charleston.
9: Freemasonry has undergone a kind of historical process of ritual inflation. It's constantly been inventing new codes, new symbolic rituals, new systems, so ladders of different rituals that you keep going through to acquire ever higher status within the organisation. The most complex and richest of those ladders, if you like, is the Scottish Rite, which really has its first world headquarters in Charleston, South Carolina, where it benefits from a sort of international traffic in Masonic ideas connecting the Caribbean, the Americas, and Europe. Charleston becomes, if you like, the first place where you get somebody trying to say, okay, we're going to govern the Scottish Rite. We're going to be the authority for the Scottish Rite because it's getting chaotic with all its rituals and so on. And in the middle of the 19th century, that work of governing and systematizing the Scottish Rite is headquartered in Charleston.
1: Of course, we're still talking about Caucasian-only Freemasonry at this point, so the next figure we'll need to discuss in terms of South Kakalaki is the lily-white Albert Pike, an outsized figure in the evolution and codification of the practice in the U.S. Pike was initiated by another Albert, this one Mackey, and apparently his initiation was a rather torrid affair. Dickey has the two Alberts breezing through the first 32 degrees in one night. Once he got that pesky 33rd degree... Pike joined the Supreme Council in Charleston and went about providing new rituals, backstory, and rules for all 33 of the degrees he had earned. His goal? Quote,
3: The Scottish Rite was to become nothing less than a summation of the wisdom underlying all human cultures.
9: Albert Pike, this larger-than-life lawyer, newspaper man, self-taught intellectual, who dives into world knowledge, world literature, writes this 800-page, absolutely unreadable summary of world philosophy, which reduces it all to a series of home truths like, you know, sort of look before you leap That's not one of them, but there's a series of very banal propositions, which is the philosophy that you learn in Scottish Rite rituals. And he designs all kinds of exuberant new rituals with extraordinary costumes and so on and so forth, all of those gauntlets and swords and caverns and coffins and you, you name it. And at the same time, Albert Pike would later transfer the capital of the Scottish Rite to Washington, D.C., where it is today, but at the same time, Albert Pike was an important figure in the main currents of history that would lead to the Civil War. How dull is this book?
1: Dickey's own book provides us with this quote.
10: The important manifestations of occultism coincide with the period of the fall of the Templars. Since Jean de Mont, or Chopinel, flourished during the best years of his life at the court of Philippe Le Bel, the Roman de la Rose is the epic of old France. It is a profound book, under the form of levity, a revelation as learned as that of Apulius, of the mysteries of occultism. The rose of Flamel, that of Jean de Meung, and that of Dante, grew on the same stem. In his log cabin, Pike filled an anaesthetising 861 pages in this way. But unfortunately, there was
1: much more to Albert Pike than Freemason autodidact and author of 800-page insomnia cures in print. As Dickey's book notes, quote,
3: Albert Pike's Gift as a Mason were that he was a voracious reader and an exuberant inventor of rituals. His main flaw was that he was a racist, and his racism profoundly shaped his fraternalism.
1: There's more, but Dana understandably doesn't want to have to quote it, so we're going to excerpt the audiobook here.
10: In 1859, Pike wrote that "...the Negro in his best condition is still in his appetites and instincts a wild beast, ready to relapse into all his original barbarism. His sexual appetite especially is only controlled by fear." and even the dread and certainty of the most fearful and awful punishment will not restrain it. To which we say, hey, Albert
1: Pike, we know you're long dead, but please feel free to still go and fuck yourself. He
9: was a Confederate general, he was a white supremacist, and he clearly, in the aftermath of the Civil War, pursued a white supremacist agenda. It's sometimes alleged that he was heavily involved in the Ku Klux Klan. I see no evidence of that whatsoever. But he nonetheless was a white supremacist who certainly conjured with the idea of a sort of white supremacist brotherhood modeled on the Freemasons.
1: So Pike was an important Masonic figure and also a big racist piece of shit. But weirdly, there appear to have been exemptions to his racism. As we noted earlier, Native Americans, unlike Blacks, were indeed allowed to become Masons in early America, with a sort of vogue in the 1840s and 1850s among some tribes for joining the craft. And Pike, far from opposing the inclusion of Native Americans, actually lobbied to help his indigenous Creek and Choctaw nation's Masonic brothers to win compensation for the theft of their land by the U.S. government.
3: Okay, so like one point in his column, but he's still a real piece of shit.
1: Oh, agreed. Just an interesting non-piece-of-shit exception to that rule, which we thought was worth noting. Another is the fact that until the post-George Floyd protests brought this monument down, Albert Pike was the only Confederate general who had a statue in Washington, D.C., but it was due to his Masonic work, not his inept military career. But there's a totally different story centered in Charleston, that of the Prince Hall branch of African-American Freemasonry, named after its founder and created in 1775 in Boston.
9: At the same time, Charleston becomes a very important theatre for a very different tradition, the Prince Hall tradition, which dates back to not long after the American War of Independence Prince Hall Freemasonry, named after its founder, is an African-American tradition of Freemasonry, formed, to cut a long story short, because racist white Freemasons wouldn't allow black Freemasons to become members, even in comparatively liberal Massachusetts at the time where Prince Hall Freemasonry first emerged. And that tradition of Prince Hall Freemasonry, still alive and well today, Just as Albert Pike's Scottish right was drawn into the politics of white supremacy in the Civil War era, Prince Hall Freemasonry has played a very, very important role at different moments of the African-American struggle in American history. So what does this have to do with Charleston? Well, it turns out
1: that Prince Hall Freemasonry made the jump from Massachusetts to the South via the legendary first all black regiment in the Union Army. The 54th Massachusetts, which the elder among you might recall was the subject of the movie Glory, that detailed their legendary, unbelievably heroic deeds in the bloody assault on Fort Wagner in Charleston in 1863.
8: In
9: the Civil War, the 54th Massachusetts, which was the first regiment of black freemen. Founded in Massachusetts, recruited chiefly in Boston, but also from lots of surrounding states after the Emancipation Proclamation to fight for the end of slavery. And it was outside Charleston and Charleston Harbor that the legendary assault on Fort Wagner, led by the 54th Massachusetts, really put an end to the myth that African Americans couldn't fight. And that regiment, was recruited by Prince Hall Freemasons. A lot of the non-commissioned officers were Prince Hall Freemasons. There's a wonderful story about a sort of improvised Masonic meeting being held among the survivors of the battle in the aftermath of the assault on Fort Wagner. But the role of Prince Hall Freemasonry
1: hardly ended with that battle. Later in the war, when Charleston was fully abandoned by the Confederates, once again the 54th and its Prince Hall leadership played a major role upon arriving first in the city,
9: and that role continued into the post-war period. A detachment of the 54th Massachusetts was the first Union regiment into Charleston at the end of the Civil War when it was abandoned by Confederate forces. Sorry, In the years afterwards during Reconstruction, Prince Hall Freemasons saw their brotherhood as a way of educating former slaves into the ways of democracy and full civil rights. Now,
1: you might well be wondering why exactly African Americans were shut out of U.S. Masonry in the first place. Sure, there were plenty of vicious racists like Albert Pike who wanted to keep blacks out of lodges. But Masonry is ostensibly built on the idea of brotherhood among men of very different stations in life, no prejudice based on religious sect, etc., etc., So how is it that black men in America were the exception? Well, that goes back to the other Albert we mentioned earlier, Dr. Albert Mackey, another major player in Scottish Rite masonry in Charleston. The whole question of including African Americans in masonry seems to have vexed Mackey a great deal, and he attempted to come up with a Solomonic decree that would comfort the racists and their policy of anti-black ostracism without appearing to impact the values of masonry. His tortured logic went kind of like this. There were no African Americans in mainline masonry in the U.S.,
3: because racists like Albert Pike kept them out.
1: True, but Mackey wasn't so concerned about that trifling detail. His point was they weren't in a mainstream lodge. They were all in Prince Hall lodges. And the thing is, Prince Hall lodges were never actually constituted properly according to the rules of masonry as interpreted by Mackey.
3: Okay, so then they could decide to do the decent thing and formally constitute those Prince Hall lodges as should have transpired in the first place.
1: Well, you would think so, but there's a problem. Prince Hall Lodges were exclusively African-American.
3: Right, because those were the people who were prevented from joining any of the other lodges.
1: Again, that's not Mackey's concern. His concern is that a set of lodges established for only one racial group went against the craft's universalist principles.
3: Wait, are you fucking kidding me? Blacks are kept out of lodges, so they make their own lodges. But those lodges weren't properly established, again, because of white racists. But they can't go ahead and establish them because the lodges are, by necessity, black only. Again, because of white racism. And therefore, they go against the principle that any man is welcome to apply to become a Mason because that principle wasn't enforced to help these black Masons in the first place. What in the actual living fuck?
10: Yeah, that's the long and short of it. Mackey had identified a way to use Masonic law and tradition to diffuse the issue among his white brethren. And he was going to stick to it come what may. He and thousands of less overtly racist white Masons convinced themselves that because their fraternity was open in principle to everyone, whatever their race, they could blithely ignore the fact that no sane black man would dare cross the threshold because it was brothers with views like Albert Pike's who created the climate inside. Oh, and also Mackey later noted that
1: freed slaves couldn't become Masons because the original covenants allowed only free-born men to be considered. QED.
3: What a titanic fucking asshole.
1: Yeah, it's some real bullshit. Fortunately, though, as usual, African Americans went about making something great out of the version of Masonry they themselves created, in spite of the indifference or active interference of white lodges. The founder of Prince Hall Masonry and its namesake fought for the country that presumed to enslave his brethren in the Revolutionary War. After the colonists' victory, he worked tirelessly first to eliminate slavery from his native Massachusetts, and then to lobby for the safe return of three freedmen who were kidnapped from Boston Harbor and shipped to the West Indies to be enslaved. Fortunately, much like the story Dr. Spence told us about the Russian Revolution, the tale of those kidnapped men had an ironic, Masonic, Twilight Zone twist ending.
10: One of them happened to be a Freemason from Prince Hall's Lodge. When he was offered in sale to a slave merchant who was also a Mason, he made his affiliation known, and the merchant ensured that the three captives were returned to Boston. A great public celebration led by Prince Hall and his brothers greeted them on their return.
3: Masonry and racism is such a weird and awful story.
10: Sure is.
1: And we didn't even have time to go into the deep and fascinating multivalenced story of masonry in India when it was a British colony.
3: Again, you really owe it to yourselves to check out Professor Dickey's book.
1: But in spite of everything, Prince Hall Masons managed to stay at the forefront of the struggles of their people. Dickey notes that Brown v. Board of Education, the decision that desegregated public schools in the U.S., was funded in part by Prince Hall donations and argued by Thurgood Marshall, pioneering civil rights lawyer, future Supreme Court justice, and 33rd degree Prince Hall Mason. Rosa Parks was in the Order of the Eastern Star, and martyred Mississippi hero Medgar Evers was also a member of a Prince Hall Lodge.
3: Unfortunately, the schism between White and Prince Hall masonry continues to this day, as demonstrated in the documentary Terra Masonica.
0: It would have to wait until 1990 for the Grand Lodge of Washington to partly put an end to this situation. Partly because even today, the Grand Lodges of the nine southern states perpetuate the separation between their lodges and the Prince Hall
14: lodges. What makes it so difficult or what, what is the what is the bridge burner that keeps us separate? Because there is a bridge that's getting burnt. Um, but yet I think it's the it's it's the acceptance of change. Um, when you grew up in a certain generation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you're stuck in a certain mindset to where the younger generation are, wants to accept that, but the older generation is keeping them from accepting it.
4: If you're truly practicing Freemasonry as you say you are, those bear- barriers need to come down. It's happening up north already, and it's a beautiful thing. When I get an opportunity to travel up north in fellowship with my Caucasian brothers, my Puerto Rican brothers, my brothers of colors. It's a beautiful thing. But naturally, reality sets back into place when we come back home here in the South.
1: Our next stop is a return to Europe, where we'll cover two of the longest standing Masonic conspiracy theories, as well as a lesser-known one that did more to stoke Catholic anti-Masonic fervor than anything since Abbe Barcowell.
3: First, let's class the story up a bit. <laughs>
1: We return to H. Paul Jeffers' Freemasons Inside the World's Most Secret Society, which is at its best when delving into the many and varied oddball conspiracy theories that have accrued to Masonic lore. For example, Mozart. (laughs) The olds may recognize that iconic laugh from Tom Hulse's giggly, frenetic rendition of perhaps humanity's greatest musical genius in the film version of Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus. It tells the story of the composer's brief life through the perspective of a real-life professional rival, Antonio Salieri. In F. Murray Abraham's brilliant portrayal, Salieri is consumed with jealousy for the frivolous wastrel Mozart, whom God has blessed with the talent denied to the pious Salieri himself. But of course, what concerns us here is the connection between the historical Mozart and Freemasonry. Volfi was indeed a Mason, though by the time he was initiated in 1785 at the age of 29, he was already world-famous as perhaps the greatest musical genius the world has ever known. For example, as Jeffers records, his first major opera, Mitradate Re di Ponto, was presented in Milan when he was… wait, this can't be right, 14?
3: That information is correct, though definitely mind-blowing. Shall we read Jessert's ninth grade poetry at this juncture for comparison?
1: Sorry, just don't have the time. So Mozart had been famous for most of his life before becoming a Mason, but joining doesn't appear to have been just another networking opportunity. Mozart instead took the craft at least somewhat seriously. Jeffers notes that some biographers think a ceremonial piece he wrote two years before joining was specifically designed to play for precisely the amount of time required to walk from the door of the lodge to the master's position, indicating he was familiar with the group and its rituals before applying for membership. He also composed Masonic funeral music for the interment of two Brother Masons and didn't earn a commission on the work
3: even though commissions were his primary source of income.
1: But the thrust of the Masonic part of his biography has to do with his composition of the opera The Magic Flute and the mysteries surrounding Mozart's death. The story takes us to 1791, when the new Holy Roman Emperor was soon to be crowned.
3: This would be Leopold II, brother of the deceased Joseph II.
1: Joseph had proved very tolerant of Masonry throughout the empire, including in Mozart's adoptive home of Vienna. Leopold, acceding to the throne amid the tumult of the French Revolution and the fear it had struck in the heart of nobility throughout Europe, appeared poised to be far less sympathetic. Per Jeffers, Mozart's frequent librettist and fellow Mason suggested that they create an opera that would serve as subtle propaganda for Masonic values, seeking to influence the coming administration, as well as public opinion, in favor of the craft. We're not going into the full plot of The Magic Flute, but many interpretations hold it as a joyful celebration of Enlightenment values. Regardless, it became one of Mozart's most beloved works upon its debut in 1790. Unfortunately, this performance would mark the beginning of the maestro's decline. At the astonishingly young age of 35, he would die in December of the next year of a fever.
3: Or did he?
1: According to a theory that those of you who have seen the play or film Amadeus will be familiar with, the aforementioned rival Antonio Salieri either deliberately wrecked Mozart's reputation, career, and eventually health through manipulation, or just outright poisoned him out of sheer jealousy.
3: Please note that Amadeus is a far richer, more poignant narrative than the hack summary he just reeled off.
1: But as Jeffers points out, another culprit has been fingered for the crime. The Freemasons. In this version of the story, the Masons were angry that Wolfi had made his portrayal of the villain of the piece, Queen of the Night, too sympathetic. Or did he? Quite. Some even went so far as to suggest Mozart had inserted an anti-Masonic counter-narrative beneath the main story.
3: Wait, you're serious? They think some masons murdered fellow Mason Mozart because they suspected his clearly pro-Masonic opera wasn't Masonic enough?
1: Well, this conspiracy theory goes further, suggesting the composer's murder was part of a multi-pronged plot involving the assassinations of the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Sweden as a coordinated strike against other presumed enemies of Masonry.
3: Who the fuck came up with this shit?
1: That's where this gets even more interesting, quoting Jeffers.
3: This fantastic plot originated 70 years later in 1861 in the imagination of Georg Friedrich Daumer, a researcher of antiquities, a religious fanatic, and an anti-Semite.
1: And seven decades after that, his work came to the attention of Nazi General Erich Ludendorff and his bride, a sort of raving fascist conspiracy-uncovering Macmillan and wife. 44-year-old reference. Who used Doomer's conjectures to declare that, quote, the Jew was the secret that Masonic secret societies were covering up, and that the whole point of Masonry was the destruction of the German people so that Jews could live happily ever after? This bullshit went through a couple of other evolutions, as did the Salieri as murderous rival theory, until the question of Mozart's death was finally settled by a panel of physicians and Mozart scholars in 2000 who determined he died of rheumatic fever.
3: Masonic rheumatic fever?
1: No, just the regular kind. Next, to murder. Specifically, the Jack the Ripper killings. Remember when we insisted on telling you about the Masonic initiation of one Dr. William Gull, even though while he was a real guy, there's no record of his actually having been a Mason? Well, here's where that pays off. For those of you who haven't brushed up on your grisly Victorian-era slayings recently, here's the gist. Between August 31st and November 9th, 1888, five women were murdered in the Whitechapel section of London. This was, in and of itself, not particularly notable. That time and place was horrific to women, and especially to prostitutes, which most if not all of the victims were. There are two main reasons we remember these five as opposed to the many other similar murders that transpired around the same period. The first is the similarities among the attacks, which have led most investigators to connect them to a single assailant. The second is a series of messages to the police, ostensibly from the perpetrator, combined with a tabloid frenzy that surrounded the investigation, which gave history a singularly memorable name for the unknown assailant, as well as a mystery that's unsolved and potentially unsolvable to this day. Those messages, whatever their provenance, are incredibly creepy. There are three key ones, the first,
14: which is... Largely coherent, is known as the Dear Boss letter. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talked about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fit. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Gram work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle after the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. There's a brief one called the Saucy Jack Postcard. I was not kidding,
10: dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. Had not got time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack
14: the You're a naughty one. Saucy Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. With...
1: And by far the most disturbing one known as the From Hell Letter.
3: Why is that last one the most upsetting? First, because most researchers think it's by far the most likely to originate from the actual killer, as opposed to the others, which were likely sent by attention-seeking weirdos or possibly members of the press looking to create the news they could then report on. Also, that From Hell letter was accompanied by half a human kidney, preserved in wine, that may actually have come from one of the victims.
1: Why half? Because he claims he ate the other half. With some fava beans and a nice
14: chianti. From hell, Mr. Losk. Sir, I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved it for you. The other piece, I fried and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Sign. Catch me when you can, Mr. Losk.
1: So these murders continue to engage the imagination, and we still don't know who did them. But, of course, there have been many potential culprits suggested by a wide range of more and less credible researchers over the past 130 years. And there's one version which, though thoroughly debunked, we really want to focus on. Here again, Jeffers is our guide, but the real reason we ever heard about this thing in the first place is that it's the subject of, for our money, the greatest graphic novel ever written, From Hell, by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. More on that book in a few moments. But first, we should outline the basic theory as originally laid out by Ripper researcher Stephen Knight back in the 1970s. Knight's tale is fascinating, if almost certainly wrong. It begins with the suggestion that Queen Victoria's wastrel son, Prince Albert, called Eddie by his family, impregnated a shop girl after a brief liaison. Worse, though, he married his baby mama, which of course meant that a lower-class woman and her child would suddenly be part of the royal line of succession. Upon discovering this, Queen Victoria herself leverages a cabal of high-level Freemasons with absolute unquestioning fealty to the crown to make the whole thing go away. These men in turn enlist William Gull, the Queen's physician, and a high-level Mason
3: Again, no evidence that any of this happened or that Gull was even a Mason. Continue.
1: To do the dirty work, not knowing that his recent heart trouble had driven the already odd Gull into a grandiose and Mason-centered insanity. He lobotomizes Prince Eddie's commoner wife, and then realizing a group of Whitechapel ladies of the night are aware of the secret and threatening to tell, kills them one by one in a series of increasingly vicious attacks that directly connect back to the violent oaths taken by masons during their initiations, especially the Hiram Abiff death recreation we discussed earlier. What evidence does Knight offer for this story? Well, it's predicated on the testimony of one Joseph Sickert, son of Walter Sickert, an artist and friend of the young Prince Eddie before the latter's death at age 28 in 1892 of influenza. According to Joseph, his father knew the whole story and kept it secret even as the murders transpired.
8: Okay,
3: so we've got secondhand hearsay.
1: Well, there's more. The murder scene of Catherine Eddowes, the Ripper's third confirmed victim, included a piece of her bloody apron found next to a wall, on which had been written the following message, complete with odd spelling and grammatical choices.
3: The Jewers are the men that will not be blamed for nothing.
1: The most important oddity in there is the word that's spelled J-U-W-E-S. This spelling, which could obviously be an erroneous rendering of Jews, pricked up the ears of many conspiracy minded folks both then and now, as it potentially referenced the death of Hiram Abiff mentioned earlier.
3: Wait, how does Jewess reference the Hiram Abiff thing?
1: Remember that the three ruffians were named Jubella, Jubello, and Jubellum? Knight explained that collectively these three were also known as the Jewess, with that weird extra use spelling. More concerningly, and this is verified, the head of the Metropolitan Police immediately had the message erased, claiming he was just trying to prevent violence against the local Jewish population. Care to guess what popular secret society that dude belonged to?
3: Rotary Club?
1: Nah. You know. As we noted above, this story has been retold in many arenas since it was originally concocted by Knight, including in a 1976 movie called Murder by Decree.
6: Why would radicals hire you to catch a man That's this one Thought, and why feed this in such a bizarre fashion, and more important still, who killed
1: But regardless of how debunked it's been, we strongly recommend you check out writer Alan Moore and artist Eddie Campbell's version, the aforementioned graphic novel From Hell. To our mind, it stands as a testament to the unique storytelling that can only be accomplished through sequential art. It renders a tale more complex and richer than any purportedly nonfiction investigation could with a William Gull who believes he is acting out the divine mandate of a Masonic deity called Jabulon, sacrificing women to the god of male reason, seeking to ensure continued patriarchal domination throughout the dawning 20th century. There are so many amazing moments. Gull's bizarre Masonic visions, the matter-of-fact depictions of the many degradations and fleeting joys of the lives of women in the impoverished hellscape of poverty-stricken Whitechapel, The creeping dread as Gull hunts and inevitably dispatches his targets, removing their organs and throwing their guts over their shoulders in purportedly Masonic frenzy. The growing tabloid fervor around the murders, the indifference of the populace, and the mystical narrative threads binding these killings to everything from the conception of baby Hitler to the very creation of the modern technological world. It's a visionary masterpiece, and you should absolutely read it.
3: Also, you should absolutely never, ever watch the 2001 movie loosely and incompetently based on that masterpiece, which misses everything great about the book and is borderline unwatchable in spite of its talented cast.
1: But for all that, and as Moore himself admits, in an afterward, the evidence for Knight's version of the Ripper case is pretty thin. Jeffers gathers the counterfactuals for us. First of all, the entire basis of Knight's story was Walter Sickert's confession to his son Joseph, detailing the Prince Eddie pregnancy and ensuing supposed royal-initiated bloodbath. But Joseph Sickert later retracted his tale, and other Ripper experts have noted that those parts of it that can be verified have turned out not to be true. The Masonic connection is particularly tenuous. Jeffers quotes Masonic historian Paul M. Bessel,
3: those who are familiar with the Masonic ritual know that the mutilations of the Ripper murder victims' bodies do not reflect any Masonic practices, rules, rituals, or ceremonies. Any seeming similarity is only slight, inaccurate, and circumstantial.
1: For example, Bessel notes that while the Masonic don't-tell-our-secrets-or-else pledges involve the heart being removed and thrown over the left shoulder, the Ripper's victims' intestines were thrown over their right shoulders. Gross, but different. It gets worse. Bessel also confirms that the term the Jewes," spelled in that odd way in chalk on the crime scene wall, has never been used to refer to the three ruffians who killed Hiram Abiff in the story. That's just someone deciding that because each name started with J-U, that this could maybe be what the message's author meant.
3: Probably. It was written to cast blame on Jewish people, either with a murderer or some passing anti-Semite and thus a police captain's decision to erase the message and protect Jewish citizens seems eminently reasonable in retrospect.
1: Also, also, the identities of the three ruffians had been removed from the Ebif ceremony in England seven decades before the murders.
3: Though not America, where we apparently lack our Masonic initiations to feature alliterative perpetrators.
1: Also, 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 the purported baby whose birth kicked the whole thing off would have been conceived while Prince Eddie was in Germany, not London. And there's a lot of doubt that a 72-year-old heart attack and stroke victim like Gull could have manhandled these young women in the way the Ripper clearly did. And again, this whole thing is based on a second-hand confession that has been offered, retracted, and modified numerous
3: times. Still, check out that book. Watchman gets all the ink, but from hell is really where it's at, Ellen Moorewise.